You're listening to Pocket Chases, the podcast where your hosts Kieran, DJ, and Niall explore the overlapping worlds of Magic the Gathering and poker with you, one concept at a time. How's it going, guys? We're back for another week. It's uh, it's the same old world out there, but we're just we're still in the hyper hyperbolic time chamber, just grinding, getting better at poker, getting better at magic. We're just at the end of this lockdown. We're going to be the best in the world at uh at both. Hopefully. So, uh, how are you guys doing this week? What's the crack now? Uh, just been in the lab. I've just been working. Haven't been playing any poker. Playing a little bit of uh, Back to Caltime Limited for a little bit, but mainly been studying poker. Just every night, just studying. And uh, I'm starting to get a little more confident, and maybe Sunday will be our first night back, I think. Um, if not, next Sunday. I'll just give it another week. But um, not learning anything like groundbreakingly new, just tightening up on areas of my game that I felt were a little bit weak before. So just in the lab. Right, and, and what? Yeah. What what format has that been taking? Are you still on the the satellite book from last week? Or are, you, are you are you watching videos or, or what are you? What's your study? I've been going through just a couple of videos on uh, Raise Your Edge. Um, we had that course bought a year or so ago now, and I uh, just watched those videos. Doing a lot of work on Equilab, just building my own strategies as as I go. I'll talk a little bit about that later but um it's just good for my pattern recognition to just build things as, a, as i go rather than passively kind of consume a video just good for me yeah I, I think people don't realize that like i think the i think when you start you're just like why would i bother like building ranges for myself and, and using aqualab and stuff like that when i can just like just google it and someone will just give me a you know a range to play 100 big blinds in cash or 30 big blinds in, in an mtt or whatever but you it's it's all about the like the the, the connections your brains your brain makes while you do it right that's that's the whole thing even if your range isn't perfect you begin to realize okay well if i'm doing this then i need to add this to the range as well for a bit of board coverage or balance or whatever and you know there's there's all these things that like it 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 just gets your brain going and it's kind of a creative process i think which people don't realize like it's not just a game theory gto thing of you know you just look at the best range and you play it because if you don't understand why that why you're playing that range you're not going to understand why other people are playing their ranges right exactly correct yeah so what i'll my process is like i build the range i go to the chart or the section in the course i see what i got right and wrong if it's close i know my brain's along the right track and if it's wrong like horribly wrong or i'm missing something i'll go back and watch a video and find out why i'm wrong that type of thing yeah i think i think that's brilliant dj i don't know i don't know if you uh do much work on that myself i gotta say i'm lazy about it i'm a lazy player but we all are yeah, i, I i'm yeah. <laughs> i'm pretty lazy like i have no real self-efficacy whenever it comes to studying poker um most of my studying uh these days just comes from actually playing there have been multiple times i can think of over the last couple of months where i have sat down uh opened up razor edge a bunch of videos in front of me and i just cannot pay attention um which is no uh discredit to raise your edge i think it's a really really great course um and the information there is really really valuable it's just me personally Uh, i just can't pay attention to pretty much anything this has been a problem throughout my whole life really like i need to be in the exact right mood and whenever i am then i'm like hyper focused and you know i will sit and watch these videos for hours on end but if i'm not then there's no chance um and it's been you know you're you know you're describing the exact symptoms of someone with adhd right uh yes i yeah (laughs) i i have been looking more and more into that uh last year and i think i 
maybe have gone my whole life undiagnosed with ADHD. Super common. So um, it's, it's really common. One of my one of my friends, adult friends, uh, like has a wife and kids, has a steady job. Uh, he he was under, undi- or I think he was diagnosed, but he'd been off, uh, you know, meds off Adderall or whatever since he was a, he was a kid, and he got back on them in the last year, and he said it completely changed his life, like working wow. life, home life, everything. Uh, yeah. He's like a different person since he's on it. So totally worth looking into because I think it is probably one of the most common common undiagnosed things because not to get too deep into this or, yeah. or armchair yeah. diagnosed DJ here, <laughs> but it's like it's like I feel like the qualities of like. Uh, like an ADHD person who isn't receiving treatment for it are like very easy for the person to like brush away and be like, Oh, that's just, I'm just not good at this or, you know, I, you know, yeah. or it's just how I am. Yeah. But, uh, so I don't know. Yeah. It could be worth yeah, uh, I, I, I think I am going to look into it. It's something I've been thinking about for a little while. Um, I just wasn't really sure how to go about it, but I think it's just worth having a discussion with the doctor. Like, Hey, I think I, uh, display these symptoms. What do you think? See, yeah, uh, see how it the goes. only legal ways to get speed as well, so you know, it's all <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, but... the Pocket Chases podcast does not uh, <laughs> equivocate for or endorse um, the taking of amphetamines, yeah. yeah. So, um, like, I I feel like I work or study best, I suppose I should say, as like part of a group. Um, I know I've I ha- uh, I'm gonna slay you guys on the podcast here. I said ages ago, oh, let's get together. We should be watching Raise Your Edge videos like once a week. We'll sit down for a couple of hours and just sit in the lab and uh, get yeah. better at this. And you know, we can, but not just for us, but for all you guys too, listening to the podcast yeah. so that we can be better poker players for you. Um, so uh, that is still something I'd like to do for the record. That's cool. Um, so um, definitely. Yeah, uh, maybe maybe look into that, and maybe I feel... I'll look into some uh, performance enhancing drugs. Yeah, <laughs> I feel I get slayed in the group study sessions, I, but maybe that's a self confidence thing. Like, I'll make a point, someone else will make a point. Usually DJ, and I, I'm like, hmm, I'm getting slayed on this point here, and I think I do myself a better service by taking myself off for half an hour, having a smoke, and thinking about. Like, I'm a very, like, cerebral person internally. Like, I just think over and over yeah. and over again. And it just, maybe I'm just slow. <laughs> That's okay. So. I think, I, I think no, not to not to big you up too much here. Your head's going to get too big. But no. I think you're, like, when you have, like, a, a proper grasp on a topic and you know what you're talking about, it's, like, e- extremely evident. Like, the way you're okay. able to phrase and explain things when you, like, you, it, like, it's just very clear when you like understand a concept and you're able to like explain it to other people very well. Mm-hmm. So I think that that's a benefit. Like Thank even you. if it is, you know, if you're, if you're slower coming, coming to that, whatever, because, sure. because when you get there, I, th- I think you really have it. So how are you, how are you anyway, yeah, Karen? No I'm good. Yeah. It's been, uh, been same old, same old for me. Haven't been playing too much magic. I, I, I'm, I'm really bored with the arena formats at the moment, to be honest. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's, um, a standard and a stark, just not the best. But I've uh, been playing a bit of Modern on Modo, uh, which has been fun just because all the bands and that, I decided to just play some decks. So the last week I played a couple of leagues with the Heliod combo deck and Modern, the green-white uh, deck, uh, which I thought was going to be quite difficult. And especially on Modo, you know, people are like, oh, it's so many clicks. You have to execute the combo and stuff like that. It's actually dead easy and the deck is way too good and needs to be banned. Ooh. And it's for anyone who wants to grind a bit of Modo, it's literally just like so many free tickets if you want to grind modern leagues with that deck. It's so easy. Like so many of the decks are literally you just go like turn one Arbor Elf, uh, fucking turn two Utopia Sprawl. You know, that opening is just broken. We've yep. all seen that before in different decks. 
into anything. Doesn't matter what you do. Doesn't matter if you combo or what you do. Also, the deck just now has like four Sky Clave Apparition in the main, which is just like a completely unfair and broken magic card, especially in modern. Like people tap out for like a four mana Karn and an Eldrazi Tron, and you're like, cool, it's just gone now. You don't have it, and they're just left with like a liquid metal coating in their hand. Yeah, uh, yeah green white fair value shit has gotten a lot better in modern, I think, and the combo is is just unbeatable as well. And and uh, so for those who don't know the current combos in this deck they don't play like uh malira anymore for example you just play heliod the from theros beyond death um so that says whenever you gain life you can put a counter on something so if you have that in play and you play a spike feeder which is a a a zero zero for green green one that has comes in with two counters on it which has remove a counter gain two life so that's just infinite life if you have heliod in play because every time you you remove a counter you gain life you put the counter back on it with heliod uh, so that's literally that, that's achievable on turn three because you have mana accelerants on turn one in this deck. A lot of decks and a lot of decks in modern just can't beat infinite life gain. Uh, most people will just concede to it unless they have a, an actual way to beat it. Then also you have Heliod and Walking Ballista. So that is if you can make a Ballista on two counters and give it life link with Heliod. We've seen it in Pioneer. You just kill them with the Ballista. You shoot yeah. them. You gain a life. You put a counter back on it. You kill them. Um, other little combos like that in the deck, kind of running around. Um, it has Ra- uh, Ranger Captain of Eos, which is from Modern Horizons, which is a card I was like, ah, this isn't as good as, as the original Ranger of Eos. You can only get one card with it. It's ridiculously busted. For one, it's a 3-3 for three. The original Ranger of, e- Ranger of Eos was like, what, a 1-1 for four mana or something like that? A 3-2 for four. A 3-2 for four. Yeah. Uh, so just 3-3 three, three for three on stats is just so much better, yeah. and that's like really relevant in this deck. So you usually get Walking Ballista. You can get a Hex Drinker out of the sideboard, which is pretty spicy against yeah. control decks. <laughs> but also it has the ability, you can sacrifice it to, your, uh, to silence your opponent for the turn. They can't play non-creature spells for the turn. And it's just ridiculous. It's oh. literally like you get the Ballista, the next turn you just untap, sack it, and play the Heliod, right? And they just they can't interact. It, it gets your combo and protects your combo in one card. That's and it's team. just a value three drop in a green-white deck. It's it's ridiculous. And it's collected company deck as well, right? So sometimes you just go, <laughs> company, Heliod and this, get the Ballista, you're dead. Like, wow. Ridiculous. It's insane. The deck is insane. And it's so easy. Like, this stuff is not complicated combo stuff, right? That I'm saying. It's just, it's easy mode. It's 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 insane. So yeah, I highly recommend playing that deck to people. Um, also had a game where I just, like, turn three to Tron player, who just, like, yeah, went, like, two, like... Like mine, map, turn two, power plant, past the turn. I had a one mile accelerant. I just like, yeah, played played the guy, got the ballista on their upkeep, just silenced them before they played the third land piece, and then I just untap and kill them. It's like, it just feels completely unfair. Yeah, it's that three drop seems like this one card combo. It seems completely unfair. Yeah. Like, so. Yeah. You know, and then sometimes it gets a hex trigger, sometimes you just get a noble hierarch or, you know, whatever whatever one drop you got. Ridiculous. So, yeah, love, okay. loving that deck at the moment. Free tickets on Magic Online if you want to play that. Wow. Free free tickets. Let's go. Um, that's been about it for me. Sorry I'm rambling for right. here, but uh, yeah, yeah. Um, qualified again for the Irish Open satellite this weekend. Let's go. So that was sweet. Yeah, but... Um, Took me four bullets this time sure. of the 11 euro qualifier, but one of them I sat it into with the one euro, so it cost me 32 quid. Still cheap. Like or 34 quid, something like that. Yeah, it's, it's, I, I got lucky the last two times, to be honest, just getting in on the, on the first bullet or satting in or whatever, to be honest. Sure. But I still, yeah, I still feel like it's cheap. I still feel like it's worth it. Uh, and last week I was in with like 28 big blinds going in, uh, just never got a hand, just blinded out basically, like survived. Sure. 
bouncing between 10 and 20 blinds for like half an hour in the tournament or something like that and then it was just gone so this time i'm going in with like 93 big blinds mm, or something like that or nice. slightly over so feeling much more confident this time dara o'kearney was actually in the satellite that i qualified from oh uh, there you go. <laughs> yeah which is quite funny it's like the, the couple days after we talked about it on the, on the podcast uh he, he was he was at my table and we, we didn't actually get it to a pop but i was like that's really funny that's definitely the same guy like it's an irish poker player yeah. playing for the irish Open. but it has to be him right wow that's cool uh yeah, it's funny, isn't it? Did he qualify so, uh, from that satellite? Uh, I don't know. I didn't knock him out or anything. I was just, once I qualified... It'd be funny if he, like, ICM punted it off. <laughs> that would be very funny. That would be very funny. But, yeah. But the chat on the tables is really crap at party poker. So, I was like... Uh, it, it, like, it seems to refresh between every hand. It doesn't, like, keep the oh, shit. the log there. Yeah. It's, really, it's really stupid. But uh, So, I was going to say hello to him, but I was like, there's no point on this yeah. terrible software. Oh dear! It was, the party software is so bad, by the way. It's like it's—I'm uh, so tilted out of my mind. I mean, tw- tweet him. I'm sure he'll appreciate it. I mean, mm. yeah, yeah. We should stick him in the. Uh, we'll give him a tweet when we uh, tweet this episode out. I guess. Yeah. So, uh, give, give him a shout out. Yeah. Cool. So um, that's been it for me with poker. Played a bit of Zoom as well, just tr- grinding it up on eight eight eight. I'm just playing ten NL on on eight 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 now. Just. Okay. I just realized, like, yeah, playing this 25 and 50 NL stuff is just, the, I don't have the bankroll for it. Okay. It's too swingy, so. Sure. So I'm just playing 10, and I'm just going to grind it up uh, until I have a decent bankroll for 25. I think you're taking uh, on enough variance for those satellites anyway. And yeah, maybe it's exactly. a good idea to yeah, reduce yeah. it with the cash, maybe. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, so, but, yeah, that's going fine. Um, yeah, another mini topic of the week we were going to mention. I know this is just me talking on and on forever, but it's also gambling-related, kind of. <laughs> uh the discord lads the irish discord lads that we hang out with and i were discussing you know you know as magic players always do you talk a little bit about magic finance speculation none of us are really speculators none of us are really bothered with that stuff it's uh, for me it's just it's just a lot more hassle than it's worth and i honestly can't can't see myself being a type of guy who fucking walks over to the post office every day or two to send people like four euro worth of magic cards or whatever just does not does not sound like something i'm in for but we were looking at the time spiral remastered uh cards with the the old border shift so for anyone who doesn't know every pack of time spiral remastered has one card uh that was printed after the border shift to the new magic border in the old border and they're all pretty uh desirable cards for the most part the most expensive one is ponder uh very funnily ponder is about 15 euro in card market at the moment for, for Thoughtseize, a, a copy. um actually i think thoughts is the most expensive thoughts yeah would make sense the most expensive i'm sure that's i mean a normal thoughts is a tenner right so yeah. uh, again sense. friend of friend of the show sean lynch is uh, his head is exploding somewhere as we speak yeah yeah with the um sure. actually <laughs> with the um actually yeah but uh yeah but we were talking about it and we realized Gavin Verhey of Wizards of the Coast confirmed on Twitter that all of these uh, cards are printed at the same rarity. So they all just appear once on, on the sheet that they printed these on, right? Ah, so ponders are rare. Uh, well, they're all as... Yeah, they're all as rare as each other. Like, even though ponders yeah. are common, it's rare. But there's 123 of the old... of the cards, right? Okay. So it's a, so it's a couple of sheets. But, like loads of playable ones are at like 30 to 50 cent for a copy on magic card market so thraben inspector was 30 cent disdainful stroke was 30 cent sylvan scrying was 40 cent uh sigil of the ancient throne which is an edh card that makes angels that was like 28 cents something like that 30 cent and there's like 300 400 copies of all of these available and we were just like this doesn't make sense if there's one in every pack there's only 36 packs in a box 
how how can one be 40 cent and one be 50, 20 euro if they're the same rarities get either it's literally impossible right so either the ponders and the thought seasons are way overpriced or the cheap cards are ludicrously underpriced right right and people are putting up like like the big sellers on magic card market have like 30 to 50 copies listed of like thraben inspector at 40 cent so we're just like how can they how many cases are they going to have to open to get that many thraben inspectors if it's the same rarity as ponder and thoughtsies right like you know they're only they're only have a 30 percent chance of getting one per box right and there's you know so we bought the shit out of those type of cards we bought the shit out of sylvan's crying we bought the shit out of um yeah thraben inspector disdainful stroke yep. just because we're like even if they go up to two euro we've like quadrupled quintupled our money on these cards 100 so yeah so they're the the sigil or the the for example the sylvan's crying i think the cheapest copies are, are euro for it now after we bought out all the cheap ones and the the sellers that we bought out are putting them back up at a euro or over a euro which i presume is just their normal strategy for like <laughs> cards like that that they're mass buying they're just like okay we sold these at the cheapest ones we see there's some demand let's relist it at double the price you know it's kind of it makes sense right it's a safety valve so i don't know it just seems like free money i still think a lot of them are underpriced if uh, if people listen to the podcast want a tip um and worst worst case the worst is you know you you punt a little bit on it you end up with you know 40 disdainful strokes or whatever that you paid 20 quid for shipped who cares it seems so like they go up to, yeah. i mean it seems like a complete free roll to me like, yeah they can't yeah, like, be worth less than 30 cents no it just doesn't yeah, it make doesn't sense, make right? sense like, at all. no and like we are choosing cards that see play you know thraven inspector sure. sees a little bit of modern play pioneer play sylvan scrying sees edh play uh, modern tron it's a four of and i think that one's particularly good because i think like modern tron players will like this old border stuff because they love having the, the urza saga tron lands and stuff like that you know what i mean it's like yeah. so yeah. i don't know man that's just a little tip right there obviously don't blame me if it goes wrong but you're not going to lose your house on this I mean, it just seems like a nice little spin up the way know? it sounds literally everything should be about 30 or 40 cents to me because if you if you have the selling power if you have the ability yeah. to sell them then they yeah. should all be worth um, you know, a couple of euro at least, and that's kind of one of the secrets of kind of large scale trading is that the money's made with the kind of commons and uncommons, and selling exactly. a lightning yeah, bolt just... for three euros is where the money's made. Yeah, you know, exactly. It's an economy of scale. The more product that's you have it. to sell, the, the less of a margin you need to make a good, a decent amount of money. Right? Exactly. So, so yeah. even if you could buy them all for thirty cents or something and sell them back. Again, this is now we're getting now getting into the mechanics of it. We sell them all yeah. back for a euro to collectors or whatever. It's still yeah, profitable. Or just, or, yeah, if they go up to two bucks each, and I have seventy of them, I'll just buy list them for a euro each or something there like you that. Go. You know, get half, the, and I've still made money, right? And I don't have to deal with licking seventy different stamps, which uh, I, I really don't want to do. So that's probably the root all. <laughs> Not in the COVID anyway, era. Yeah. I, I, yeah. Another factor there as well is that we're in the middle of uh, COVID era. You know, yeah. um, mm -hmm. this set is pr is probably going to be underprinted in the grand scheme of things. Hundred um, percent. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I I think it's a really good shot. I was thinking the other day, whenever you guys were talking about this, um, going back to original time spiral and looking at the time shifted cards from original time spiral, and seeing what their kind of market value is like. And there's a lot there that you know just sat at the fifty p one pound mark. Of but course, yeah. The thing. Yeah that I don't think I considered is that there, so much time spiral was available back then. 
Exactly. Uh, exactly. That's the thing, yeah, I, yeah I, I, I don't think there's going to be a whole bunch of Time Spiral Remastered. No, no. about Pro- Probably not even so. half as much. I think it's going to be a success. I think Wizards are going to consider the product a success. Like, the response has been hugely positive to it. People are obviously going to collect the cards and open them and everything like that. But yeah, as you say, during COVID, we've had supply chain issues with, like, multiple supplementary products so far. Commander Legends seemed to have it. Jumpstart certainly had it in Europe. It was, it was what, two or three months delayed here to, to be even able to get a box of Jumpstart here. Yeah. Uh, and, and that's still expensive. And you're just seeing it in every business in the world. So, yeah, if... I just think the uh, the sellers have fucked this one up on MKM. To be honest, I think yep. I think they're way off on their pricing. So the, that's that's my opinion. Also, yeah, as a, as a little note, we if you ch- uh, the prices aren't really up on the American marketplaces yet, which is interesting. TCG Player and stuff like that. They don't. It seems like the American sellers are being a lot shyer about setting prices. Mm. But um, some of them ha- like I think Card Kingdom had set their pricing for the Sylvan Shrine at like eight dollars or something. You know, seems reasonable. So if that's if that's in any way accurate, yeah. you can just buy less than the Card Kingdom straight away and just you've quadrupled your money or whatever, nice. you know? So, I don't know. Yeah, have a look at it, guys, if, if that kind of thing interests you. You might end up with a, with a box of 200 fucking cranial platings or something that you can't ship, <laughs> but not my fault. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so that's enough. That's our MTG Finance sub-podcast, I suppose. <laughs> and I promise we won't do this regularly, guys. I know people who want mtg finance con- content can get it where they can get it but sure. just thought that was an interesting little thing it it's kind of a unique situation right so exactly yeah yeah all right so we're gonna move on to our topic of the week oh that's okay uh, nobody wants to hear about my week that's fine oh uh, sorry dj uh, how was your week um, i'm so sorry no no no, no i I, I, f- I feel very uh insulted and left out now i am um, I, I think i'm just gonna leave to be honest see you later guys that's, that's yeah fair. no um honestly i'll i'll keep this one uh, short and sweet. I have, I did my first Sunday grind in a while there on Sunday. Oh. Uh, we were in for about ninety bucks, came out for eighty. Uh, missed everything oh, apart from the storm where we went very deep and finished about four hundred for eighty dollars. Um, yeah. we for about an hour, uh, fluctuated between like thirty big blinds and five big blinds on three <laughs> separate occasions. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, like ev- every, it seemed like every single time that I worked my stack back and I was like, okay, right, we're back in this. I instantly lost my stack again. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and I was back down to five big blinds and that's happened like three times until eventually somebody was able to knock me out, uh, kicking and screaming. Um, but, uh, also took a, took a cheeky, uh, week off work this week. Um, Ooh. so Fair just enough. been chilling about the house. I think, uh, there may be plans between Nile myself and some of the other guys maybe play some seg tournaments this weekend some seg satellites so uh we will um see how that goes and maybe we'll have a uh, victory podcast for you guys next week yeah hopefully for anyone who doesn't know these tournaments seem to be great that scg are doing they're like i think six or seven dollars in or something like that yeah Yeah. six rounds uh and if you go uh, there's a point system so yeah if you go four two or better you qualify for the sunday 5k and also, I think if you go 5-1 or better in one of the qualifiers, you qualify for the next month's Mythic qualifier on Arena. Mm-hmm. So it's like a lot of value Super there. Important. To me, that's like that's such a much more attractive option than trying to grind the ladder on Arena and sweating over whether you're going to make top 1,200 in yeah. the last couple of days or whatever. Absolutely. I'm I'm never in for that. That to me is like, that, it's just stress I don't want to have. Yeah. So yeah, the idea that I can just play a $6 tournament and, and maybe get there is way more attractive to me. So yeah, for anyone who doesn't know, check them out. Just as a side note, I wanted to give a shout out to the lads 
grinding the limited ladder last season. That is the most competitive I have ever seen the limited ladder. It was obscene. It was yeah. And I, I'm never going through that stress again with it. I mean, I know that there was more heat on limited because of the Kaldheim uh, open, you know, the, the arena open and everyone's playing more limited and, there's probably more gems floating about Arena these past couple of weeks than there has been in a while, mm-hmm. you know, because people are depositing. Yeah. And um, just watching the guys, like six months ago, I made Mythic in um, in Limited. I didn't have to touch my, my account for the next two, three weeks. These guys yeah. were grinding and it, it was so yeah. stressful to watch. It was crazy. I, I kind of thought that might happen. Like, I, I was like, I don't know. It's kind of a perfect storm. It's a new set. So people are drafting more. Yep. And we have this arena open, so all the serious players are going to make Mythic because they're practicing for the open, so yeah. and they're going to want to stay in top twelve hundred. So yeah, it was it was really wild. Like, um, it, I think it's the probably the first month ever where it's been like that for limited. And mm-hmm. um, I'd imagine it's going to go back that way unless they announce another limited open or something like that sure. very quickly. Yeah. Uh, I imagine the limited open probably made them like infinite money, so, so I wouldn't be surprised to see it because because everyone's feedback that I saw was very positive. As I said, we talked about it in a previous episode. I was happy to fire multiple bullets and enjoyed myself far more than the constructed one, to be honest. I thought it was just a great event. Loved it. So, yep, good stuff. And yeah, congratulations to anyone who made it last month because, yeah, that was a, that was a tough, tough field. Yeah. 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 And of course, uh, Dave Murphy, King of Limited, first one in our group to, to make Limited. So he got the official crown <laughs> last month. Uh, and also, uh, he also got double Mythic last month. He made it in, in constructed as well. So double awesome. King. Yeah. Double King. But, uh, okay, sure. so, yep, uh, SCG, check it out. We'll put a link in the show notes, maybe. And, yeah, so moving on to our topic of the week. We are going to talk about, we, we kind of figured we hadn't done a, a Poker Fundamentals one in a while. We did Satellites last week, but that's, like, kind of particularly specific. So we're, we're going to go back to the more of the basics for you guys and we're going to talk about what seems like a super broad topic, but we're just going to take it in parts. We're talking about bluffing this week. Let's go. So, obviously, everyone who plays poker knows what bluffing is, right? If you know nothing about poker, you think it's the entire game, right? You think it's all about a poker face. You think uh, you think it's about solo reads, bluffing people. Even if you're a recreational po- poker player, you're likely to think that. As you get better at poker, you realize that, like, you know, that isn't really part of it, and uh, it's a lot more about like hand strength and stuff like that, and kind of just playing good hands, you'll make money. And then as you get better than that, you realize, oh no, I do need to be bluffing a lot, but there needs to be science behind it. There needs to be a method to the madness, right? Yeah. So we all see these players at, uh, you know, random kind of, you know, micro tournaments or live tournaments or whatever that we play with our friends, and they have no method to the madness when it comes to bluffing they just they have seven four offsuit but they just go this is the hand on bluffing i'm going for it and they three bet and they shove all in on a on a five bet or something like that and there's no rationale behind it except for i just want to bluff this hand the helmet special so the helmet special <laughs> yeah uh so we're gonna try and talk about good bluffs versus bad bluffs this episode so we've decided to take basically a street each so another one left over so i'm going to start off and i'm going to start talking about pre-flop bluffing then we're going to move on to dj i think you might be stuck with flop and turn here or yeah, yeah, it, yeah. It, the two are kind of like 
very related. Like Turn is very strongly associated with flat bluffing yeah. anyway, so that's that's fine. Uh, and then Niall is going to cover river bluffing. Cool. So if you haven't already listened to our episode on ranges that we did early in the podcast, I would strongly advise you to listen to that because you're going to need to understand those concepts to kind of get what we're talking about here and understand how to construct in your mind when is a good opportunity to bluff both based on the state of the board uh what cards are on the board and your particular hand uh in the context of that board so i got the easy job here i'm going to start off uh, talking about pre-flop bluffing so and we're going to try and keep it neutral i guess in terms of talking about tournaments versus cash games and stuff like that sure you know obviously things do change uh you know from from format to format in poker and how much you should bluff when you should bluff you know we said last week in the satellites episode uh niall you made the great point that often in satellites it's better to lower variance you know and just call rather than raise so that affects your bluffs as well as your value raises right but we're going to be just context neutral here and we're just going to assume it's just it's just a normal poker game whatever that means no (laughs) so so when do you want to bluff pre-flop right Preflop is interesting because most of the time you have not put any money into the pot yet. You have not V-pipped, as they say, voluntarily put in pot. So you've got to have a reason to put chips in the pot. Uh, and that is either... Well, it's, it's because you'll win chips. That's the only reason to put chips in the pot. But um, you either want to do it for value or you want to... Uh, you know, you want people to call you when you have a very strong hand. You know, you get to play a pot in position or something like that. Say you have ace-king or something. You know uh you you get to you get to open it up and, and you just get like someone with a worse king calls you and you just get three streets of value right it's just like ideal dreamland poker yeah. but then you also have times where you'd much prefer to take it down pre-flop for example let's say you are under the gun opens you're on the button and you have king queen offsuit or something like that and you decide to three bet with that hand this is like what i would consider like a bluff raise yep you know, but it's 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 kind of preflop. It's kind of on a spectrum of value to bluff. It's not really one or the other. And king queen is obviously two good cards that you're happy to play a pot with. But the reason uh, against the under the gun opening range that you want to see a fold is if they raise you, you're dead. You have to fold. You've lost money. And if they call you, you know, uh, let's say they call you with ace queen and a queen flops. Suddenly you're losing a lot of money because you're dominated. So King-Queen is a good hand to bluff there with because it blocks a lot of the really strong hands in their range, uh, meaning like, say, Pocket Kings, Pocket Queens, Ace-King, Ace-Queen. Okay, uh, definition of blockers, because I don't think we, uh, we've talked about them before, but just so people know. Sure. A blocker is a card that you look at in your hand and you go, okay, because I have this card, it is literally impossible that they can have uh, certain hands or it's less likely they can have certain hands so let's say if we have king queen offsuit uh, we can then say okay i've taken a king out of the deck that means that there's literally three less combinations of or sorry there's one less combination of ace king suited they can have mm-hmm. uh, i think there's two less combinations of pocket kings they can have is that correct yeah and then four yeah. less combinations of ace king offsuit and four, co- yeah, four combinations of ace-king offsuit. So, and the same with queens, right? You say that for a pocket queens. Right. Uh, and, and ace-queen and ace-queen suited. So and It doesn't sound like much, that, but it adds up really quickly. It adds up, right? If you do this a thousand times in a row, uh, compared to if you bluffed with 7-4 offsuit, 
they're going to have way more ace kings, way more ace queens, way more pocket kings, and way more pocket uh, kings over that thousand hands when you have the 7-4 offsuit because it's just more statistically likely because those cards are still in the deck. Right. You, you know you have not removed them. You are not blocking them. So that's kind of, that's what makes king-queen a good blocking hand and what makes 7-4 maybe one of the worst blocking hands you could, you could possibly raise with. There's no reason to basically ever do it unless there's some really weird reason. So now it gets interesting because like you might be like, okay, well, like ace-king suited is a very similar hand to king-queen offsuit right or ace king offsuit and, and king queen offsuit they're very similar right they're really not uh and it's, it's because of what i said before about the domination aspect like if they flop a top pair with a better kicker than you you're losing at least two streets of value and let's be honest we're all calling stations you're probably going to call that bet on the river as well and you're going to lose three streets of value right. that's going to happen to you a lot um this also happens with suited hands where this is obviously a lot less likely but it does happen a lot where you have a lower flush than them, right? You uh, you have king-jack suited, for example, and they have ace-queen suited at the same suit. You're losing 100 big blinds that way, right? So, you know, king-jack suited is still a good hand to raise with there, but you've got, you have to understand, like, why do I want to win this hand pre-flop uh, and have them fold versus I'm not really that comfortable playing a pot and flopping top pair and, and trying to get three streets of value with this hand or two streets of value with this hand. Right. So, so that's kind of the simplest, um, simplest one. So that's kind of an imposition um, bluff raise. Now, the, I guess the the other aspect of it is you also need to balance your range, as we say. This is a concept I think that a lot of players hear and they sort of understand, but they don't really understand how to implement it. And if you ask them to give a definition, they probably couldn't really tell you what it means. Because it's one of those things that sounds simple, but it, but it's quite difficult to do. So what is balancing your range? The idea is um, when you raise preflop or in any city, when you make any action, right? Ideally, if you're playing completely optimally from a game theory perspective, you should have an equal amount of uh, bluffs and value, for example. You know, just to, to give one context to it. That's that's not like the definition, but that's just an example. Sure. So... Or to, to sorry, just to briefly interrupt. You go ahead. That's go okay. ahead. Yeah. An appropriate ratio given the bet that's going into the pot is, is sorry, probably that's a much better way of saying it. Yes. Yes. Exactly. So it doesn't need to be half and half, no. but you know it needs to be every time you raise with your aces. You can't only raise with your aces and your and your pocket kings, yeah. right? Because then every time you raise, people are going to fold, and you've probably seen those players, and they're very obvious when you play against them. So you have to have some bluffs in your range as well as value hands. So it's very important what you choose for your for your bluff. So that's what we do, that's what we're talking about when we're talking about these blockers. Why that's important to consider. Other like uh, let's let's say like let's take two like example hands, uh, and like why they're they're good bluff hands or not. So let's say you have pocket sixes on the button against an under the gun open, or you have jack ten suited under an under the gun open, right? It's kind of like, you may be like, these hands are kind of like vaguely similar in like absolute hand strength, right. probably. You know, they're not too far off from each other. If you were just like against every single hand in the game, you know, which which is going to win more. They're, they're probably like close enough. But sixes are like a really bad choice to do this with uh, because they don't have any blocking ability. Like what do you, what, what good hands that your opponent decided to open with uh, are you taking away when you have pocket sixes? Literal zero, 
literal no hands they could possibly have. The only hands they're going to fold, your sixes are probably very playable against anyway. So you're probably happier playing them multi-way. Or, sorry, not multi-way. You're happy happy playing them in position. Right. Uh, a hand like pocket sixes. Also, like, if you... I don't want to get into the concept of set mining and, and whether that's a thing or not. But sure. uh, they play very well multi-way because if you do flop a set, uh, and, and you're against two people who flop a king or something like that each, you're going to make a lot of money that way. Uh, and again, you'd much prefer to just keep your initial investment low and then and then make that decision on the flop when you've hit something or not. And yeah, the only hands that are going to call or raise you, crush you, right? At, uh, you're, you're very optimistic to even think you're a coin flip against someone who raises here, right? You just have to insta-fold every time. There's no way you can call... There's almost no flops that look good for you with pocket sixes. You know, even if it's a jack high flop, uh, you know, you're still you're still losing to pocket nines or something yeah. that, that raise you. You know, there's just almost no hands you beat. Whereas with the jack 10 suited, one of my favorite hands in poker, I gotta say. Of course. It's, it's so much better, right? It's not as good as king queen in terms of blockers, right? You know, it's a, like there's not that many jacks and tens that are at the premium hand range of poker. It does block ace jack. Uh, ace jack suited ace 10 suited maybe a loose player's opening uh ace 10 offsuit under the gun sure. but you know you're not you're not blocking too many of those hands but uh it's really really playable against you know uh better hands like pocket queens pocket kings stuff like that just because your potential for flopping the nuts is is so good you can flop the nuts straight you can flop uh the nut flush and as DJ will get onto, I'm sure you can then continue bluffing if you flop a flush draw or a straight draw. It gives yeah. you a lot more, there are a lot more decisions in what Terry Pratchett called the trousers of time, which was his, <laughs> his uh, words for kind of, you know, the multi-universe theory and, and yeah. uh, quantum mechanics and stuff like that. He said, every time you make a decision, you go down a leg of the trousers of time. <laughs> There's a lot more of those legs that lead to you having a good flop to bluff on with Jack 10 and 6-6, six, six, right? Absolutely. So you're ha you're happy with Jack Ten if you get a fold because a lot of the time a hand that's better than yours folded. Honestly, that that'll happen. And you're happy if they four bet you. You can sometimes still call sure. because your Jack Ten hand honestly isn't even interacting that much with the with the uh, the range that crushes you. Yep. Right. You could still you can still flop two pair uh, and be beating pocket aces. You know stuff like that. Uh, uh, and you're happy if they call you because you're in position and you, and you just get to call and, and you know, see about the flop or whatever uh, and keep going. So I hope that's a good example. I don't know if you guys agree. It yeah. highlights what you were saying earlier is that pre-flop, it isn't strictly value bet or bluff, even though we call Jack-10 suited or Jack-King offsuit on the button a bluff. It definitely is a bluff, and we use it as yeah. a bluff combination when we're constructing our range. Yeah. Pre-flop has elements of fold equity, of future playability, and all those things together make up the whole equity of the hand. I wanted to make the point exactly. that around five years ago when G2 was starting, they liked to abandon like future playability and say, oh, that's a human thing. That's just You just think that because you like to play the hand or you make it, it makes it easier in the future. Recently, we've discovered with solvers that it is a thing. Future playability, it is. absolutely, it is. Because yeah. being able yeah. to turn your Jack uh, 10 suited, as you say, Kieran, into a high equity bluff further down the line, prints more money down the line. 
Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And again, uh, if you're doing that with pocket sixes, pocket sevens, really, how many, uh, like, what flops are you even having? They turn into, like, like low equity bluffs. bluffs. Those turn into the bluffs exactly. where you have to, you have an underpair to the board and you have to just barrel it off and hope for a fold. Whereas Jack 10 yeah. turns into the types of hand where you flop it up and down straight draw. And if they call, you're going to win 25% of the time anyway. Exactly, or more because you're going to barrel again when you don't hit, and then they're going to fold. It's, which you're, le- you know, you, you with the sixes you have to give up more because you're just like that's it. They just aren't going to fold, right? You know exactly. Yeah. So um. So yeah. So that's kind of the the simplest form of bluffing in poker, I guess, right? Because right. it's pre-flop. There's not very much information on the board. There's only two players involved. You're in position, so so you have an easier decision than your opponent does. Um. I'm going to. I'm not going to talk about like three bet or sorry, like four bet bluffing out of position okay. because I I just think it's it's it happens way too infrequently at the at the level that most people are playing and it's just it's just not a very val- valuable topic. Yeah. yeah. Um. But the other um topic I want to cover about pre flop is uh bluff raising from the blinds. Sweet. So because we were talking about in position there on the button. Now we're going to be talking about out of position, so in the small blind or big blind. And I'm going to take first the simplest situation, which is going to be the button opens, we're in the big blind, uh, the small blind folds, and we have to figure out how often do we want to fold, how often do we want to call, how often do we want to raise. Now, uh, we're going to be folding a lot, and we're going to be calling a lot. We're actually not going to have many raises in this spot, because our range is... uh, Basically, it's like the button just knows this is the most profitable situation in poker. You just print money by betting into the blinds, having them fold, you win the blinds, right? If you're not doing that incredibly regularly, like, I don't I don't know, like 50% of the time or something like that is the button or more probably, yeah. uh, you're, you're, you're probably, you should look into that in your play. But that means that as the big blind, we have to have strategies to combat that. We can't just be folding every single big blind we get dealt because then we're losing from that position at a rate of 100 big blinds per 100 hands, which is impossible to come back from and have a profitable win rate, right? right? So I think this is a very important idea that I didn't understand for a long time in poker. You're never going to be profitable from the big blind. You're never going to make money from that position, but it is incredibly vital that you minimize how much you lose from that position, which means defending against against, uh, button opens for the most part. Now... A lot of the way you do that is calling because you're going to have a lot of marginal hands that you're getting a cheap price because you've already paid one big blind to call with. So, for example, if you have 7-6 offsuit, you're just going to happily call, right? right? You're not going to think about raising. It's not weak enough to fold. Well, you can probably fold it some percentage of the time. You're not going to call it every time. But, you know, you're happy to see a flop with that um, and just play the hand on the flop at a position. You're going to fold a lot then on the flop, but you can't just be folding that pre-flop every time. So, and it's the same with basically, like, any ace, for example, you're going to at least call with in the big blind, right? So then the question becomes, okay, what hands do we want to raise with in the big blind? And the way I play generally in cash games is like not that many. Um, like because I think people over continuation bet the flop uh, when they're on the button in this position. Right. Uh, I'm kind of happy to let them do that. And I'm kind of happy to let a a bigger portion of my range just sit in the big blind call range than the raise range because i think i think i actually make a lot of money you know with hands like just like king nine or something like that Uh, not king maybe like king 10 king jack where 
you know, it's like, I don't need to raise this hand. My opponent has has all the king eight, king nine, king ten in his range. Yeah. Uh, and I'm actually going to win like a lot of money when, when that occurs, right? Right. So I, 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 I don't know if you guys agree with this. Are you focused? For me, I... Sorry to interrupt you. Go ahead. Kim. Sorry. No, go ahead. Go Are ahead. you yeah. focused on no, was... po- post-flop playability when it comes to your calling then? Are you more, uh... I- I'm going to call with the hands that are very playable. And then I'm going to three bet bluff with the hands that have less playability post-flop. Is that the way you're approaching that? Um, honestly, it's like I, uh, my range there is pretty exploitable, and uh, that's fine, pretty yeah. exploitably, and it's like it's very value heavy for raises. <laughs> like, um, I would put hands like maybe like nine ten suited and stuff like that into my raise range as well. Sure. Um, but for the most part, yeah, it's it's just gonna be a lot of value. Okay. Um, that's not balanced, and it's probably, but I think at the at, in the games I play, that just kind of works quite well. Yeah. Um, and I'm kind of happy enough doing that, but for the most part it's like you're you're doing enough by calling i think a lot of the time in the big blind rather right. rather than raising you just i just don't think you need to bluff that much in that spot you know and people will just go crazy sometimes and you're out of position and you know um by the way in the small blind uh when i play i never just call the small blind i play an exclusively razor fold strategy uh in the small blind except for really weird situations like in a tournament where the button open limps or something like that, right. and then I'm happy to complete, right? Or if but you have like a, a nor- if you have like a mega mega fish in the big blind or something, yes, yeah. something like that, yeah. But for the most part, I I just hate the idea of sp- calling in the small blind. The courses and stuff I've watched have basically said the same, and I think it's just, I think it's like the the profitability of having a calling range and not having a calling range there. Is the difference is just not big enough right. to have a calling range. Yeah. You're making you're making your game so much simpler, and it's still a solid strategy to just never call in the small blind. I think just just always raise or fold basically. Yeah. Um, so, but the situation, the last situation I wanted to talk about, which is the situation I love bluffing pre flop with the most, is squeezing. Let's which go. Is my favorite play to make in poker. It is just the most fun thing you can do pre flop, and it. I think in lower stakes games and against bad players, it must be one of the most profitable strategies in the entire game. It's just absolutely outrageous how much money it makes. So for those who don't know, what squeezing means is you have someone in position uh, uh, opens, they raise. Someone else in position, say the button, just cold, cold calls, as they say. They don't raise, they just call. And then you're in the small blind. You can do this from the big blind too, but I just don't, to be honest. Um, like it, basically, because as a bluff, this looks so much stronger from the small blind than from the big blind because there's another player yet to act. Even though that big blind player will almost never enter the hand, I think there's just a psychological impact where it just looks so monstrous when the small blind raises here, and for some reason, I just don't think it does when the big blind raises here. Um, and also, as the big blind, you're going to have a lot more hands in your range, again, that you're happy to call with because you're getting a bigger discount to enter the hand, right? Yeah. So there's actually less incentive for you to raise there because even if you have, like, king two offsuit or something in this situation, I don't know if you play that, but, like, king two suited, say, or something sure. like that. It's it's such a nicer uh, idea to just flat call there and see a flop and maybe flop two pair or, you know, a flush draw, draw that you can then check raise the, the flop with. Whereas in the small blind... You've put less money in, which means that calling is more expensive and raising and taking it down straight away is more attractive, I think, right? Yeah. Um, 
So what hands do you want to do this? And the thing is, like, this generates... The reason I'm saying this makes money is this generates such an outrageous amount of folds from your opponents. Because you just have to look at the situation and look what it looks like. Let's say your opponent's under the gun range is pretty normal. Let's say the worst ace they're raising is, like, ace-jack offsuit. Uh, and they're raising, like, pocket fives plus and maybe, like, eight-nine suited plus or something like that, right? Um, and then the button is... Uh, is flat calling let's say they're not doing anything weird and they're not flat calling with like aces right they're not doing anything totally out of sure. the ordinary let's say the best pocket pair they're just calling and not raising with is like pocket eights pocket nines maybe and let's say they're calling with their jack 10 suited rather than raising like we said sure. and they're calling with their uh i don't know like king jack off suit maybe or something like that they're just playing this kind of loose uh, passive calling range, right? Which they really shouldn't be doing, but this is what a lot of players do. Uh, and they're calling with all their pocket pairs, right, as well. They're calling with pocket deuces. Then, when it comes to us in the small blind, if we raise, it just looks so strong. Because the under-the-gun player is like, I have to make a decision, and then the buttons still act after me, and I don't know what they're going to do. So it's such a horrible thing for them to just call. Mm -hmm. Uh, so they never want to call there, basically, right? They own, they, uh, which also gets the button in extremely cheaply into a now hugely inflated pot with their kind of capped range. Yep. Uh, so it's just horrible for them all around. They're facing this uncapped range from the small blind. You could have pocket aces, and they're if they call, they're giving this super cheap price to the button, and now they have to play out of position three ways to the flop. So they hate calling, and they don't really like raising either, and they. They should probably raise more against this than they do, population. Mm. They, like, four betting here is, is probably very good, but nobody does it unless they have queens plus. That's that's honestly true. Um, and, you know, if you're talking about, like, 10 NL cash or something sure. like that, with, like, soft games. Yeah. Um, and so let's, that's going to generate a lot of folds unless the under-the-gun is at, like, the like the, near the top of their range and they have ace-queen or ace-king or something like that. Uh and then it gets to the button, and it's like, well, if their range wasn't strong enough to raise in the first place, it, it's very hard for it to be strong enough to call or raise now. So the button is almost irrelevant even when you make your raise. You're like, I don't care about them. The only person I have to make fold is the under-the-gun player. So it's like the, the button has like dug their own grave and dug the under-the-gun player's grave by just calling instead of raising. Yep. They've actually lost both players money straight away by doing that in a lot of these situations right. so again the card the, the hands you want to do this with uh are like you know like king queen is a great example again because it's blocking both players now from having these you know pocket kings ace kings stuff like that so it's the same thing as i talked about on the button i won't go into go into it further there you don't want to really do this with pocket pairs um unless uh, that should be the value part of your range right probably like jacks plus sure. I, I would say is like the standard you don't want to do this with pocket eights right because a lot of the time you're getting at least one caller and then there's a fucking Broadway card in the flop and you're like, well, I'm fucked now. I, yeah. You know, what's what can I do now? Um, so, yeah, but I would do this a lot with like, uh, like medium strength suited hands. Like, I think like, maybe like, uh, maybe like Jack 10 suited is probably the worst hand I would do this with. Sure. I'd say something like that on average. But again, I just think it's like, it seems like a scary thing to do, and I don't think this is like a natural, intuitive play for recreational players when they're learning the game. But once you do it a few times, just try doing this, guys. It just works so often, you will be like, this is absolutely ridiculous. Yeah. Um, I will say it's a play that like I make a lot more often in cash games than in tournaments, because your stack is just more important in tournaments, 
and yeah. uh, you can't just be blasting off as much as, as you can in cash games, right? But in, uh, in cash games... <laughs> I know, yeah, we've well... got DJ Carson on the podcast, so... <laughs> what, um, okay, guys. What, yeah. what the, point, the point you made there... Um, so, when you're selecting your hand to do this with, what you've got to remember is that what we're trying to do is leverage the most out of our entire range. So what I tend to do in those spots is use a hand that doesn't perform so good or so well post flop when I call, but is too weak to fold or is too good to fold. So something like yes. king king nine is sometimes a good um squeeze candidate versus an early position and yep. a middle position raise something like or middle position call something like that, um because you don't want to do it with a suited connector because a suited connector is a perfectly yep. fine call just defend there and yes. play some post flop. You don't want to do it with. Yep. I'd know ace queen because that's a perfectly good calling hand versus the under the gun range too. You don't want to raise yeah. your ace queen yeah. and then get the get four bet four bet by the under the gun player and have to fold away your ace queen. But if you do it with king, king nine yeah. or jack ten, if you get four bet by the under the gun player, we have an easy fold now. So we're yeah. using that that's part the of the, way, range. the, the Yeah, that's the way I do it in the big blind. Mm -hmm. um, like I said, I don't have a calling range in the small blind, so so I absolutely employ that absolutely. Yeah, yeah, but no, you're dead on. Yeah, yeah, that's one hundred percent the way to go. Before we cool. um... right, DJ, any any thoughts on that, DJ? Um, yeah, I think the only thing that I would maybe uh, contend with, and I think Niall al already just touched on it there, is that uh, hand selection. Whenever it comes to bluffing in certain spots, I feel like, uh, by and large, as a very very general rule, um, three bet bluffing with two Broadway cards probably like. The likes of like queen jack or queen 10 or jack 10 um probably aren't your best hands to select there because yeah. all of a sudden you're folded like it gets back around to them and they are folding um their weak hands anyway and yeah yeah uh they're playing your strong hands and you're you're blocking those weak hands that you want them to have I think is the important part. So with your jack ten, you're blocking their ace ten off that they might fold. That's true. Um, That's very to, true. To the yep. three bet. Yep. So, yep. Um, like I said, I think Nal already kind of touched on it there. But better hands to select in those spots are probably the likes of uh, jack nine and jack eight versus under the gun, for example, because they're not going to oh, have. I would, a lot... I would use those as well. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Well. Yeah. Um, that to be clear, I do the... this too. <laughs> 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 Seems bad. Um, Ha ha having having the nine or the eight um unblocks um those weak hands that they're likely to have um so yeah i th i think those are i think it's sl slightly much of a muchness but i think they are better candidates at the end of the day no i think that i think that's a great point yeah, yeah. i know I, th I think that's a that's a great point from yeah from my part it's like to be honest even if i am not using the optimal hands and i probably need to study this it's like people just so majorly overfold anyway yeah, you're winning on the frequency anyway yeah. yeah yeah so but not to say it can't be done better and yeah obviously theoretically dj i think i think you're totally right there that sounds better all right so moving on next we're gonna talk about in my opinion just uh just the easiest part of the game post flop i covered the most difficult stuff and then <laughs> dj is just gonna take us home with uh you can see the cards on the board of the flop like it's so easy to know when to bluff or not right dj um i wish it was that easy um so there are so many moving parts and variables whenever it comes to 
post-flop bluffing. And I'm going to try my best to really, really simplify this and make it so that we're not here for the next 12 hours discussing flop bluffing. Because <laughs> I think if we did go into the weeds on this, I think we could ha have like a monster podcast talking about this. I think we 100%. could genuinely be here for hours. So I'm going to try and make this as simplistic as basic as ABC as possible. Um, I'm not going to go into detail about uh, bet sizes, for example, because there are going to be times where you're going to want to use different bet sizes on different flops, different textures, depending on your range, depending on villain's range. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm just not going to go that far into the weeds. It's very advanced, and I don't think that is the kind of message that we kind of want to convey right now you know i think okay. a lot of our listeners are going to be just getting into poker um coming over from magic or they're going to want to learn about these concepts so let's just start on the ground floor um let's let, let let's not get too ahead of ourselves so post flop bluffing we're going to start on the flop obviously and then i'm going to talk about the turn and then i'm going to hand over to niall who's going to take us home with the river so Starting with the flop, we're going to start with one of the most common and most famous bluffs going, and you you might have even heard the term before, you might not have, but it's referred to as c-betting or continuation betting. And you might even be uh, doing this without knowing that you're doing this right now, but yep. c-betting or continuation betting, I'll just refer to it as c-betting from now on, is whenever you are the aggressor in a hand and the flop comes and it's checked to you or uh, it doesn't have to be checked to you but you're the aggressor in the hand and you bet so i think that c betting it it, it it is one of the most profitable bluffs in poker it's one of the most profitable spots in poker yeah. because you're the aggressor you have this range advantage your opponent is capped i.e. they should not be they should not have uh better hands than you can because you should be uncapped because you're the aggressor you should be able to have aces ace king kings whereas they should not have because they are not the aggressor so that make that leads to a lot of profitable scenarios where a board comes and either you're just very heavily favored in terms of range advantage or the board is so dry that it's just so likely that it's missed uh, villain's range that you can just bet and take the pot down there and then. Um, there are going to be a lot of spots where c-betting 100% of the time uh, with your range is just going to be very, very profitable. And I think those spots come more often than not from the dry side of things. So... If anybody doesn't know what we're referring to whenever we talk about a dry board, this is something that's pretty much completely unconnected and there's not many draws out there or there are no draws out there. So the example I'm thinking of is King, Six, Deuce and Rainbow. And by Rainbow, I mean uh, there's no two cards of the same suit. All three cards are of a different suit. So uh, there is only the possibility for backdoor straight draws and backdoor flush draws. I think that is where you want to be c-betting just 
100% of the time. Because, again, I'm going to talk about in very general terms. I don't want to go into, you know, middle positions ra uh, range, buttons range, big blinds range, yada, yada, yada. Um, just, it's just so hard for them to have a hand that they really want to call with here. Um, if they have eight, nine of clubs, they're... They just have to fold. If they have ten jack of clubs, they just have to fold. Yep. Uh, they can have queen ten, queen jack. They can have like even a hand like uh, ace ten suited or ace ten offsuit. Like it's pro it's probably gonna f you know float once, but it's not gonna be super happy about it. Um, because yep. they basically all all they really want to see on the turn is an ace. If a queen or a jack comes, then I'm, they're gonna think fair enough, but they're probably not going to be able to withstand another bet anyway. So, yeah, this is just a really, really profitable spot that you should probably just bet. If you have pocket threes here on this board, just bet. And yep. you'll take it down a lot of the time. Um, the thing about this then is that, I mean, you can start to get trappy in tournaments where, you know, you're never going to see this villain ever again. But in situations where you're playing against good players who might pick up on what you're doing, you all you have to bet your big hands here too. You know, you can't start checking your ace king, your king queen, or your pocket kings or your sets. They have to be bet as well. So that is what you might consider um, a con of this strategy because you're going to bet with your really really strong hands and you're going to make no more money from it. But uh, there are, I mean, there's going to be times where your opponent has king queen and you have ace king, and you just get all their money. So it yeah. it, it it does even out in the long run. Like you might see oh. nine times out of ten your opponent villain just folds, but the one time where you stack them out of ten balances that out. So it, it exactly. it's fine. Yeah. yeah, don't worry about it. And and what I would say there is like the way you should be thinking about your hands, like sets and ace king and stuff like that on that board. Those are the hand you want to get three streets of value with every time, which mm. means you have to bet three times. You can't start checking the flop there because then even, let's say you just bet turn about river then and they call both times. You've just made less money than you could have because th there's a portion of their hands that would have called three streets instead of two, right? So yeah, it's it's just, it's it drives me insane when I see people bet, you know, check back their pocket kings on, on king six deuce rainbow or something like that. It's just, yeah. it's just ludicrous. Yeah, you know? I I, again, there's, uh, with uh, shorter stacked pot ratios, you know, that all of a sudden does become a very viable play because it's so much sure. easier to get your stack in by the river. But if you have like 100 plus big blinds or even like 50 plus big blinds, just bet, bet, bet. Just go for it. Yep. Um, so we've covered, we've kind of covered seabedding um, on dry boards. Seabedding on wet boards can be a little more tricky. But whenever you start to consider that c-betting on wet boards as the aggressor, you have significant range advantage. So if the flops is king queen, you know you have you have aces kings queens ace queen ace king king queen. You know you have all the really good hands, and you even have jack ten for a straight. Whereas a villain as a defender maybe has like jack ten and king queen at best. So again, this is a really profitable spot um, that you probably do just want to bet um 100 of your range i think there are some arguments to be made um you know if you have king jack or king 10 or queen jack or queen 10 maybe 
those can introduce some checks, but I don't think you're making a huge, huge blunder by uh, betting 100% here either. Uh, no, this is. The, I think that in particular is a board that, like, uh, theory would tell you um, that you're supposed to be checking a lot more on those boards. But actually, I think people just play badly and overfold uh, and don't check raise you when they should be check raising you on those boards, which right. is why you're not supposed to see bet 100% there. Mm. They just don't do that enough. So, as you say, DJ, I think it's still profitable just to see bet a lot. Yeah. I do. That's, that's my exact strategy. I 100% yeah. see bet those that I've been playing competitive poker for three years now. So. And it's yeah. insanely profitable. And I'll stop doing it when the population start play, starts to play well. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's it. Like, um, people who should be calling with hands like Queen Jack or Queen Ten, the aforementioned, um, like, they probably just fold there. Like, yeah. you know. Um, yeah. We might talk a little bit about minimum defense frequency come the river. Um, yeah. But, like... As a general rule, um, I know the topic is bluffing, but if you have bottom pair in a single raise pot and there's only, you know, it's a heads up pot as well, you should be calling all your pairs, pretty much. So Yeah, um, you, should, yeah. you should basically never fold a, a pair on the flop to a single bet. It's yeah. just, I see people do it and it's it's madness. Like, yeah, it's, it's absolute yeah. madness. Um, and population are doing that. Like, yep. So just... Just bet all these boards a lot, a lot, a lot. Attack, attack, attack. I think the only scenario that I can think of um, where c-betting like 100% of the time may not be super profitable is uh, button versus big blind as the aggressor and the board comes like 98-5 and it's 2 Yeah, like... Yeah. Um, I think that board is technically kind of neutral, but I would expect to get check raised a lot of the time here as well, and I'll just muck my, you know, is 6 or whatever. Um, so there are, like, is 6 has a lot of showdown value there. You probably want to, well, I, would, I say a lot of showdown value, but um, you, pro you probably want to check at least one street and then decide again on the turn if you want to take an aggressive action on the turn um especially on the board that i just described where you've got shot as well so getting check raised is an absolute nightmare so th those types of situations in hand you might want to consider just checking back and not uh going for a bluff here yeah and are you saying dj you would never bluff there is there are there any oh, no. hands you would yes no? um the, you, in every given scenario in poker i uh one of you guys can correct me if you or if you disagree, but there should be a bluffing range. Um, so this eight nine five boards, yes, I would expect to get check raised a lot, but we have to have bluffs here too, otherwise we're not making as much money as we could. So, if there's a value range, there's a bluff range. Exactly. That's yeah, that's what we talked yeah. about earlier, balancing your range. Like, yep. there's going to be times there where you have pocket nines, right, and you have top set. Mm. So you need to be able to make money, which means you need to be able, you need to be bluffing there as well as value betting or anyone who's knows what you're doing is just going to fold anytime anytime you don't have a bluff range means you don't have the value range just it, there's yeah. some going to be some situations in poker where we want to check 100 percent of the time that's okay mm -hmm. that means yeah. we don't have a value or a bluff range but if we have a value range at all we have also a bluff range yes that's absolutely yeah. um so and, uh, the, what, the, the types yeah, of fans what would you that, choose yeah, yeah the sorry, types of fans yeah. i want to be selecting here 
are hands that I think are very sturdy against check raises, pretty much. Yeah. So uh, we're we're talking about hands like ten jack. Um, yep. We have an up and down straight draw. We have two over cards. Um, we have a lot of good turns. If we get check raised, we are very very happy to peel it off. Um, hands like queen ten. So uh, hands that have a gut shot straight draw and two over cards, um, as well, are very good uh, candidates to bluff with here because we're pretty sturdy against those check raises. Um, hands. Also hands that are easy folds. I like here's bluffs as well. So pocket deuces. Um, yep. you, pocket deuces is actually a great one for when they call as well here because we're unblocking. Um, we're getting into this concept of unblocking in, but we're unblocking all the hands that they would choose to bluff here. Um, so that one's actually a good candidate to take three streets. And maybe Niall might talk about that um, later down the line. But... Um, yeah, uh, so hands that are very easy folds and hands that are that I am very happy to uh, call a check raise with. And I'm going to balance that out by if I get check raised and I have a set of nines here or a straight here, I'm just going to call that too. So, uh, yeah. And so, then, DJ, what I, what I like to do on this board is say I have ace king mm -hmm. and uh, I miss the board completely and it comes uh, nine, eight, six, two tone and I, I don't have, uh, I, I have offsuit and I don't have any of the cards. At that point, I like to get very mad that I didn't hit an ace or a king, <laughs> and I just like to uh, blast off three streets about against my opponent as a bluff. What do you think of that? Um, I I think that's atrocious, yeah. and you should reevaluate your life. Um... <laughs> yeah, to be clear, <laughs> is is that one of the common like worst bluffs that you can see constantly? Like people yeah. with ace king that miss and yeah, aren't like... happy to check it back and win with ace ace high. Like yeah. this is for me, you see this so often, and it's just crazy. People yeah, have so... no idea how to play it so yeah. i think a level up moment here for me in these spots was seeing that is king no pair on nine eight six is actually still kind of a value hand um so like you're still you're still ahead of villains so often um because they, they are going to have hands like queen four suited king four suited um like uh king seven like they have so many hands that you're still ahead of here um and betting and getting check raised puts you in a relatively miserable spot i think it's one of those ones that i'm still very okay with calling a check raise but i'm much less happy calling a check raise with ace king than i am with 10 jack um, That's it. because it it has uh slightly less equity in the long run um to make a big hand you know, yeah, ace king, I'm... you're drawing to an ace or a king. Ten jack, you're drawing to a ten, a jack, a queen, uh, any of your straights. Um, if it's suited and you have the flush draw as well, you have the flushes to make too. So, um, like ace king. And also, also those hands are beating, like, uh, like some of what our opponent has as well, right? They're beating two pair, whereas if yeah. our ace or our king is not beating two pair, right? Exactly. So, yeah. 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 Um. So. Whenever you have uh, strong aces in these kind of scenarios, it's ge you generally uh, want to play it a little slow and get to the river as cheaply as possible because there is a decent chance here that you still have the best hand. So there's a decent chance you have the best away. hand, and there, there's a great chance if you hit one of your six outs, your ace or your king, you definitely, you almost definitely have the best hand. Yep. If, you yep. know, if they've checked twice post flop. So yeah. Yeah. So. Um, I think that kind of covers uh, c-betting in general um, as the aggressor. 
You're also going to want to have bluffs as the defender, and I think this one is a good bit more tricky um, to uh, profitably select. Um, C-betting, it's just very easy because you have range advantage, but as a defender in a pot, in a hit, and all these scenarios are going to be heads-up pots as well, so that we yeah. don't get too far into the weeds as well. <laughs> but um, as a defender, you have a capped range, so... These ones can be a little more tricky to pin down. Um, and I think what it boils down to is kind of knowing how your range should look. So we'll go back to this ace-king-queen because I think it's kind of interesting with a capped range. Um, this board gets checked to you as, uh, as the defender in the pot. Like... If you start looking over um, your range in this spot, uh, you're going to have a lot of hands like uh, King Jack, King Ten. You're going to have uh, some uh, eight sevens, uh, sixes types of hands. You're going to have eight nine. You're going to have seven eight. You might have uh, some Jack nines. You're going you're gonna to have all these kind of weak hands. You're not going to have very many strong hands here. And the only two strong hands that... I would personally have in this spot are 10 jack and king queen mm -hmm. yeah so much. all of a sudden if villain is tuned in um you're gonna you're gonna have some like uh is tens and like maybe some is fives or is eight suited yeah those are like the top of the too. drag pile yeah uh, and then yeah. yeah um so if you're if villains tuned in at all they should realize that too so if you start attacking this board as the defender, your range generally isn't going to be strong enough to hold up against uh, aggression from villain, where you probably um, could have, you know, just played a cheap pot, got to river, and your king jack was good, for example. Sure. So it does become a little bit more tricky, and as a very general rule of thumb, um, I think here is that I would be doing a lot of checking, but with some of my absolute worst hands, because whenever we have king, queen, ten, jack here, we're going to be want to be betting. So uh, as we alluded to earlier, wherever there's a value range, there's a bluffing range. So there's going to have to be some hands that we have to select here. And the sort of hands that I suppose I would select here um, would be hands like ten, nine. Um, just some of some of the worst and also some like uh maybe sixes type hands we're not going to want to be doing a lot of bluffing here we're not we don't have to select a lot of hands to bluff with here um 10 nine's good because if we turn a jack or a river a jack then you know we made it straight that's great um and i think hands like sixes and sevens or fives you know whatever how far down we go those are just like the worst hands we have in a range. So I think those are just good ones to select. I think as a general rule, um, if you are at the bottom of your range and you have a very low chance to win the pot, then you probably have a good bluff candidate. That's just a very general rule. There's sure. more things to think about, like uh, your actual card selection. Um, you know, and again, I think that might be something Nile covers, like River Bluffs, where you have the Ace of Clubs um, on a three-club board. You know, card selection is going to be important too, but as a very general rule, 
Um, I think one of the things we want to be doing is if we have a really, really weak hand that's at the bottom of a range, we, we can bluff with it and it's going to be fine. Yeah, so this is a concept, guys, known as polarizing your range um, that we're not going to get into super heavily, but you may have heard that term. And so if you think of your range as a spectrum of like the worst possible hand you can have to the best possible hand you can have, what DJ is saying here is that the very worst stuff that like is very unlikely to win, that becomes a bet because it's it's very good as a bluff because you're if you check and you go to showdown you're basically you're you're never going to win uh, there's a lot of good cards for your opponent there's not a good a lot of good cards for you so it's better to try and get them to fold then the next stage of the spectrum which is very wide is uh kind of decent hands which goes from sort of like the ace king that we talked about with no pair uh, but you have ace king high to sort of you know maybe you maybe you have like uh like jack nine you know, on on ten nine four or something like that. You know what I mean? One pair of hands like that that are valuable, but they're not good enough that you want to get more money in. You'd prefer to control the pot and see another card for free and get to showdown cheaply. Then the last part of the spectrum is your really strong hands, and those are going to be the ones that you bet on these boards. Those are going to be like your sets, your top two pair, uh, your like noted straights and flushes uh, that you've hit on the flop. And again, that's what's called balance. We're balancing that portion of our range with the dog shit portion of our range that yeah. I said first, like the pocket fours, pocket fives. <laughs> and in the middle, we're having a bunch of checks that comprises both air and uh, made hands, pairs and stuff like yeah. that. And that, if you can think about it that way, that's a way that we're not getting exploited here. We're making good bluffs in hands that we don't want to see another street with. We want them to fold. And we're balancing that against our extremely good hands that we want them to call when we bet. Yeah. So following on from this, I have a question from Niall. Niall, why don't we want to balance our really good hands with our like medium strength hands? Why 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 do we have to be betting the dog shit part that has no chance to win? Why can't we bluff some of our like better medium strength hands? Sure. Um because I'm going to borrow a concept from Peter Clark here. He calls it the Platonian range. It's in a Platonian society, every single person has a job and they're perfect for that job. And they're, everyone's happy, right? The Platonian range is a way to leverage the max value out of your entire range. And a hand in the middle, like let's say Queen Jack that has a pair and a gut shot uh, on this ace-king queen board. Um, if we bet here and get raised, or we bet here and get called by a better hand, we've actually canned and thrown away the showdown part value of that of that hand. And that's a disaster in poker. What we need to do is bet our very good hands, hold on to the value that that is in the showdown value part of the range, and then the part of the range that has no showdown value at all, we use some of that for bluffs. So when we bet our showdown value, we're actually throwing away some of some of the inherent value of the hand. Sure, we're going to win more when when they fold. That that's fine. But we're going to use our drag part of the range to do that anyway. So it's not like we need to add more hands. The correct way to do it, if you think you should be bluffing more, is add more of the shit hands and retain the value in the middle. Yeah, hundred percent. And this this is this is so important because. Every, every poker player, when they're learning, does this. They'll do this. They'll, like, bet, uh, for example, yeah, with Queen Jack on, on Ace, King, Queen or something like that. They'll get called or they'll get raised. And suddenly they go from a comfortable spot to... No man's like, land. I have, just... 
yeah. I have no idea what the fuck I'm doing. Yeah. Right? That's immediately how you feel. You're like, am I just bluffing now? Is my hand ever still good? Uh, do I just fall? Like, literally, you're going from, like, very comfortable to... I actually have no concept of where I am in the hand. How behind am I? Am I that behind? How many times do they blow? You know what I mean? It's just, yep. it's it's ridiculous how bad a decision it is. And it's like, you don't get better at poker and, and, and know that. It's like, you get a better better at poker and stop doing it. Exactly. Like, yeah, yeah. That's what yeah. happens. Yeah. yeah. You don't, you don't, you're not turning into a supercomputer overnight. It, and yeah. in fact, the supercomputers are doing exactly the opposite of that anyway. Exactly. The, super, the yeah. supercomputers are using their bad hands. So. yeah yeah um so yeah thanks for that Niall. i think that was r- really well explained yeah. um we're not going to move away from the flop quite yet because there i think there is one more really important topic to cover about flop uh bluffing and that is going to be bluffing from the big blind so Kieran, you okay. kind of alluded to it already um be. we should be defending the big blinds very often so that we can minimize our losses and the way that we do that is we're, we're gonna have to bluff a lot you know yeah. um we're not gonna make a lot of great hands with these marginal hands that we're defending with from the big blinds so all our money's gonna be coming from bluffing uh the aggressor off you know out of the pot so generally from the big blinds we are going to want to be doing a lot of check raising um yeah. on flops yeah. so, i think this is like i said about um about the pre-flop stuff are we even going to talk about leading range as bluffs in big blind here like, uh, i think we can almost just I, talk about check yeah, raising you know we we, we, we yeah i th- i think i think I'll, i think i'll touch on leading just very quickly okay. um and i'll sum I'll, I'll just sum it up if the board comes say uh six seven five and you're face you're facing off against you know under the gun plus two like you could theoretically lead here because you have all the two pairs and all the straights that they don't and you even have sets that they don't yeah. do so it, 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 it might it might actually paying be attention yeah about, the, about it, the the in position ranges we talked about this board is bad for them right yeah. which means they don't they don't like to see this lead here they're like they're not supposed to do this what the fuck you know yeah ha, ha, so having a donk lead strategy uh can be good too and also boards that are like seven seven deuce you know those are pretty good ones to choose to lead as well um so basically if you have range if you feel like the board has swung the dynamic of the ranges heavily in your favor then you can just donk lead and you should be doing pretty pretty good for yourself there um, I, I would warn against this though because I think this is like a concept that is useful and is profitable and every poker player should learn but I feel like this is one of those ones that when it's good it's pretty good but when it's bad and you make a mistake it's really bad and you lose a lot of money yeah. so for me this is a more advanced concept that people should be you're never making a huge mistake if you check 100% of the time as the as the big blind of this situation absolutely you know what yeah, i mean exactly. i think i think it's more often going to be a bad mistake than it is a marginally good play uh, yeah. for, for an amateur player and i i think i think a lot of the time if you do want to kind of employ this strategy um i i don't think a, a one and done strategy here is bad either you know no, like yeah, uh it's totally fine yeah on, yeah on those kinds of boards like you're still putting hands like that they can have like queen jack in a relatively tricky spot um, just, just on, on the, the five players, six seven board you know 
So. Yeah, just think about the players that we just told uh, see bet everything. They're, those yeah. players are going to lose money to anyone who exploits right. that by suddenly donking at the time. They're not going to know what to do. Again, they're in no man's land. Yeah. But the thing is, not many people do that. You're not going to have to deal with that that much. Um, so, and we're not talking about donking today, although we should do it in future. It's a great topic. But yeah, sorry. It is, yeah. Um, so check raising then. Um, we're going to be one of, we're going to want to be doing a lot of this from the big blinds, and we are going to want to do it with a lot of marginal hands that might make us feel pretty uncomfortable, get us out of our comfort zone, but yep. it kind of has to be done. Um, obviously, uh, again, the point that you should know how your range is structured versus how villain's range is structured is very important here. What are the good hands they can have? Am I uh, just bluffing myself into oblivion here by bluffing into a board where they have all the good hands? Um, are they ever going to fold? Obviously, like, player selection and bluffing is actually an important thing to think about as well um are they pretty passive post-flop um if they are then you can throw in some more bluffs are they a bit of a station then you probably shouldn't be bluffing half as much as you are um but we still have to construct these ranges and as a general rule of thumb again this can vary depending on the player, depending on the board texture, yada, 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 all the disclaimers that we've talked about already. I am going to be check raise bluffing with a lot of my gut shots. Um, and I'm going to be check raise bluffing. I might even check raise bluff some air on boards that are really favorable for me. Um, so yeah. let, let's go back to that 7-7 uh, seven, seven deuce. Um, it's monotone. Or it's not monotone, sorry, it's rainbow. Um, so three different suits. And I have jack six of hearts. And one of the cards on the board is the heart. And that's why I'm going to decide. I'm not going to be check raise uh, bluffing with jack six of hearts on this board every time. But I'm going to do it 75% of the time. And I'm going to decide that based on whether there's a heart on board or not. If there is no hearts on board, I won't check raise bluff here. If there is, I will because I can backdoor hearts if things go tits up. Yeah. So I think I think this uh, is a really interesting wrinkle. Uh, just to point this out, in terms of the two ranges, uh, paired boards is actually a really interesting thing that I've been studying, and I think this is a, this is a great example. Generally, paired boards are good for the aggressor. Um, because a lot of the a huge amount of the aggressive ra or aggressor's range is then made up of good ace highs, like on ten ten nine or something like that. Suddenly, you're unblocking. You know, an ace hasn't hit the flop, so you're suddenly hitting a lot of ace kings, a lot of ace queens that are going to be good because it's less likely that anyone has a pair because the board is paired. Right, the the board itself is blocking someone from having a pair. Mm -hmm. yeah. But as DJ said on seven seven deuce. How, how many sevens or deuces does, does the aggressor ever have? Very few. Right. So suddenly what should be an advantage for the aggressor becomes a bluff candidate, as DJ is pointing out. And I think this is really interesting because specifically it's low cards. So I, I love that. I love that in his example, DJ. Yeah. Um, and again, uh, we have to find some bluffs here because we're going mm. to have value here too. So we have to find some bluffs and... I like choosing the ones here that kind of wrap around 
um, the high yeah. end of the boards and to have uh, backdoor flush equity as well. So those are the kinds of hands I'm selecting. I am check raising my gut shots and it also means that I am always check raising my really strong hands check raising my really strong hands so if i have made a set or a straight or trips or top two pair bottom two pair whatever it is it gets check raised too because 100%. um and we are going to check call all, all pretty much all our pairs um yep. there is definitely our, so um again i know the topic's bluffing but um just just so that people are clear um I also like uh, check raising some of my top pair medium kicker sure. type hands just because they, uh, so say the board's 9-5 deuce, I have 9-8. Um, I might want to check raise here because there's a lot of turns that, you know, if an ace-king, queen, or jack comes on the turn, specifically ace-king or queen though, like, I feel a little bit more vulnerable. So I'd rather just get the money in now while I have top pair. Um, Dave Murphy is crying with joy. Listen to this, the raise for protection. <laughs> it also allows me, you to have top pairs. Yeah. It also it allows you to have exactly, top pairs. Exactly, there's some top pairs in your range. I think that's the important part. Yeah, yeah. and you just have to accept that in that scenario, you're going to get uh, stacked off against CS9 or King9 sometimes. That, that That's just going to happen. Yeah. It, it's fine. Um, um, I, th I think one thing I want to point out just about what you're saying, and you, you've explained it very well, is that the stuff you just explained... The easiest way to visualize it is just think about what we told you before in the other position as the uh, as the aggressor i think about you're the button now against this big blind and you look at this king or sorry like 10 uh 10 7 6 board or whatever we're talking about nine uh, nine eight five now we're like we just said you shouldn't maybe you shouldn't see bet see bet that much on this board because mm -hmm. you don't have that much range advantage right so now that's something you can exploit when you see someone do that on this board and you're in the big blind. That lets you have more check raises because you go, hang on, buddy. You know, you have all the ace kings and stuff like that here. That didn't hit this board at all. So you're probably over betting here because most of the population does. They probably don't understand that they have to have a lot of checks here and they're yeah. just blasting off the one third pot button. And that means they're probably overfolding check raises, which means yeah. you get yep. to do the stuff you're just talking about. So yep. it, it's it's the same thing, just from different perspectives that we're talking about. Yeah, that's it. That's poker. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, so I think uh, I think that'll do us for uh, flop bluffing. I think. Congratulations, uh, by the way, Dave, DJ. That that is a huge, that's, huge sorry, area of the game. That's and... a gargantuan topic, and yeah. I feel yeah. bad now that we we saddle you no, with no, the entire uh... flop bluffing. <laughs> it's um, massive. Very, very happy to talk about it because yeah. I think I I think river bluffing is just as if not more interesting. So I'm really excited to hear what Niall has to say about that. Yeah. Okay. Um, that's what I was going to say actually. Like I think uh, flop bluffing and river bluffing are two of the most interesting spots to choose um for your bluffs um turns are a little more intuitive aren't they turns yeah. are a little more intuitive and um basically i think what it boils down to is that so take your dog chip part of the range whenever it gets to the turn you know you shave off like a little bit of the top of your dog chip part of the range and you keep bluffing with the absolute worst um the reason we're taking some of it out is because we are going to just be bluffing too much if we uh, have like 20% of our range that just bets flop, bets turn, bets river, we end up just having far too many shit hands 
and we get uh, we we lose more money than we should. Yep. Um. So. Yeah, I think um, we'll go for another general rule of thumb. The hands that I like to bluff the turn with are hands that have uh, picked up equity. Um, so our uh, flop bluffs, um, let's say, let's go back to 895 just because. Um, I'd say, I'd say like, just, just so people can visualize it. I'd say, like, let's take the scenario where we have, like, C-bet or bluff the flop. Right. And yeah. now we're deciding whether to bluff the yeah, turn. That, that's that, what we're talking about. Yeah, yeah. That, yeah. That, 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 that's exactly what we're doing here. So uh, the flop is 8-9-5. We have king-queen uh, as the aggressor. We have king-queen as the aggressor. We have bluffed this flop. And uh, villain is called. And the turn comes a jack. So all of a sudden, we have picked up a good bit of equity here with a gotcha straight draw um so this is a good candidate it was probably a good candidate anyway because you have over cards but uh we've picked up even more equity here and we can feel pretty good about continuing with our bluff because we have a lot of outs on the river to potentially have the best hands so um those are the kinds of hands i like to keep bluffing on the turn another example might be on a, a rainbow board um where we have backdoor flush draws and the turn comes and all of a sudden we have a straight up flush draw perfect yeah um must be nice so, <laughs> so yeah we, we, no i we always have, bluff like, it and then never hit it <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah we have ace five of hearts on king six deuce rainbow and the turn comes another heart um say it's the three of hearts um, all of a sudden we have a gut shot and we have a flush draw and that hand has a lot of equity and we should feel pretty comfortable about bluffing with said hands. That's just a very general rule of thumb and if any, I these general rules of thumb like at the micros will make you money um, but you're going to want to go away and do your own studying to find out where the nuances are here. So for me, this is like, it's basically another way of, of explaining what you just said. You said hands that have picked up equity. Mm. For me, the way that people naturally talk about this concept is, was the turn a good card or a bad card for me, right? Yeah. It's kind of it's kind of the same thing. So let's say on your example, uh, we have ace five hearts on, what was it, king six deuce mm. uh, with, a, uh, with a heart. Let's say the turn is the six of clubs. Uh, extremely bad for us, right? Yeah. There's now trips on the board. Now let's say it's the it's the six of hearts. Okay, now we've picked up the backdoor flush draw, sure. but our opponent could have a full house now. So this is maybe this is we got to think about this one. It's like okay, we bluff this sometimes maybe, but we can't bluff it all the time because again we're susceptible to check raises here uh, because yeah. the board has now been paired. Yeah. Uh, but if but yeah if it's the if it's the three of hearts or something like that we're blasting okay. off every time right. So it's, it's, yeah, it's for me, the way I think about it is, is, is this a good card or a bad card for my range and for, for my opponent's range? Yeah. And, but what you're saying is correct. Basically that scientifically it's that, do I now have more or less equity with my range to win the hand? Yeah. And so, what, but, yeah. Yeah. Like another thing that you do have to consider here as well is that whenever you do pick up that little bit more equity, you always have to be concerned about getting check raised. Yeah still yes, or or exactly. raised in general yeah. you know because you've picked up that 
that equity if you and getting blasted off it is pretty bad too so this comes back to bluffing kind of being player dependent um maybe there's a bit of game flow going on and by game flow i mean like maybe you've gotten loads of pots with this guy and uh he's getting sick of your shit uh, or yep. the opposite you know you've just always had it and they're just folding too much now uh, that's kind of what i mean by game flow um there are just so many factors that you have to consider and a constant that you always have to consider are your range and villain's range yep. you always have to be thinking about that otherwise yeah. you risk just blasting off into really lots of really strong hands when you know maybe if you just sat down and thought about it for another five or ten seconds you'd realize oh they can have king six here as well or they can have six seven six eight five six a six and there was absolutely no reason for me to do that i've just uh, incinerated money here so yeah always have to be thinking about that kind of stuff um i think this is maybe as well i know you said we're, we're not really going to talk about sizing and i think that that is good i think maybe turn bluffing is the one time we should talk about sizing okay because turn over betting i think is one of the most powerful tools in a poker player's arsenal if you know how to do it mm. uh so I'll, I'll cover this one dj if that's all right yeah sure go for it yeah so basically an overbet means you're betting more than the size of the pot just for anyone who doesn't know that's listening and the reason you do that is let's say let's say we're button versus big blind uh we opened and the big blind called right then let's say we see bet a uh, a a flop like uh, dj talked about earlier like king six deuce rainbow so in this situation i'm not even going to say what our hand is to be honest because it, it doesn't matter that's the entire point of this concept uh they should have very few check raises here because the board is so dry uh it doesn't interact with their range very well at the most they should have uh, like the very top of their range is like two pair here basically it's like king nine or something like that and most of the time they have nothing and they fold or they have a hand they continue can continue with that's a pair basically uh, you know pocket fives or nine ten sure. or sorry what we say uh six seven or yeah. you know king eight or something like that then on the turn let's say we have uh the like a, an offsuit jack so it hasn't brought in a backdoor flush trot so like essentially just like a, a, a blank uh you know top pair from the flop is still top pair on the turn no new draws exist now if you see about the flop and they call the flop and then that card comes on the turn uh you can employ the incredibly polarized strategy of over betting on the turn you can have bet a third of the pop on the pot on the flop they call and then you can just bet 150 to 200 percent of the flop or of the pot on the turn and the reason you can do that and it becomes such a hard decision for your opponent is because they've told you on every decision so far in their hand my range is capped i don't have the nuts basically pre-flop they told you that by only calling instead of raising on the flop they checked you then they only called instead of raising and now a card came that can't really improve their hand most of the time so this means that uh you can employ a polarized strategy which means that with your total air so say let's say with your uh ace 10 ace 10 ace 8 offsuit on the button or something like that hasn't hit anything has no chance of being you know of, of being a nutted hand uh you can do that with your ace 8 offsuit total air it's really hard for them to call even with like king eight, uh, king eight or something like that even with top pair you just bet 150 percent of the flop how can how can they call with a weak top pair it's so difficult and they and you know they they have no draws to check raise you with 
So the only thing they can check raise you with is like sets that they've slow played basically. So their range is just like 75, 80% folds and like 20% hero calls. You know what I mean? So you want to polarize this again, like we talked about earlier, you want to do this with your total air that you think basically does not have a chance of winning against showdown since they called your flop bet and they probably have a pair and you have nothing. Or you want to do this with your like uh, your sets basically on this board because there's no flushes or straights. And this is like so strong. Again, I think this is another one that's a little more advanced. If you go wrong on this and you do this on a bad card where actually, you know, uh, like a straight has come in or a flush has come in or, you know, a two pair that they're likely to have, you know, like, a, you know, cards close together or something yeah. like that. That's that's a really bad time to do this and it's going to lose you money. But you would be you're going to be so shocked at how often people fall to this when you have absolutely nothing. It's one of the best bluff bluffs in the game, in my opinion. Yep. If there's any message we can get from this whole podcast is bluff more. You're going to be surprised yeah. how often people people fold. 100%. And as humans, we don't bluff enough anyway. We don't. We're 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 kind of programmed against it. We don't yeah. like doing it. People don't like risk. Uh, don't don't uh, call against me though. I'm never bluffing. <laughs> so. All right, Niall. All right. So I think I think that's enough turn, DJ. Or did you did you have more? Or no, no. I I was about to say. Yeah, let's hand it over to Niall, the Rivermaster Grim. Let's and go. That's let, what they let, call him. Yeah, let, let, let's see what we got. Like so I'm happy just, to learn just, here because I think I've lost more money on rivers. Yeah, than, I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm very excited for this so, little part of the so, seminar. But just, 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 so. before, it was, just before it starts, uh, triple, barreling, triple barrel bluffing on the river uh, is a uh, common pastime of mine. Um, Niall refers to it lovingly as the Lugtud special. <laughs> yeah. um, Lugtud being my star's name. And I really want to get better at the Lugtud special. Just three air balls. Now. One, two, three. <laughs> just bricking. Just off the headboard and bounce back in your face. For me, I'm so bad for this. And it's been this way since before I knew anything about poker. Since I played in like 2008, 2009. I am just addicted to triple bar. It's a lovely, well. isn't it? It's just... Yeah. It's just the best. It's just the best. So now I'll take it away. <laughs> All right. So we're on to the river. Um, the river is an interesting one, as the lads said. It is much, much different from the previous streets. So um, on the river, um, since we're now on the final action, we were not concerned with the future equity of our hand or anything like that. And we're boiling our decision down to a straight mathematical exercise basically and i'm not going to go too heavy on the maths for this one but i'm going to have to introduce it because this is the core of the concept all right so what we're going to do is um we're going to categorize our hand into one of four categories all right so if you're not already doing this i want if any new players listening, to start thinking in these terms, okay? So our hand is either one of four things. It's a value hand that we're betting for value. It's a, and some some of those are going to be checks with the intention to check raise, but let's just call those value hands for now. Mm-hmm. Um, we're going to have a second category, which is showdown value, which is the middle part of the range that Kian was talking about earlier. These are hands that are not good enough to bet for value, but are good enough to check and sometimes call if our opponent bets. So for example, second pair is a good is usually a good example of this. Yeah. Um third category is going to be weak hands that are not good enough to check 
call, as in tap and call a bet, we're going to turn some of these into bluffs. Okay? And then we have a fourth category, which is weak hands that we're going to check with the intention of folding. And some of those we're going to turn into check raise bluffs. Right? Yeah. So yep. what we want to do primarily is we want to take category one, which is our value hands, and category three, which is our weak hands, and construct a frequency. And it's this frequency that we use to win or lose money, basically. This is our bluff to value bet ratio. Okay? So, so how, how do we use it? So how we construct this ratio within our range is dependent on the size of our bet. The bigger the size of our bet, the more bluffs we want in our range, right? Um, and there's kind of maths behind this. I'll give, I'll give you the maths straight up. So if you want to bet full, the, the full size of the pot, 100% pot, that's your sizing that you, you choose to deploy, you're going to need one bluff for every two value hands. That's the ratio. And this is because our, if we look at the flip side of the equation, our opponent gets two to one on the call. So the optimal, si optimal ratio is, is this ratio, this two to one ratio. Yeah, because if right. they are calling at the correct frequency, we need to have the correct amount of bluffs in a range, basically. If they understand right. pot odds, we need to construct this range in that way. Right. And yeah. the beautiful thing about it is even if they don't, we can't be exploited with this ratio anyway. If they call too very, much, very good point. we yeah. make money on our value hands. And if they fold too much, we make money on the bluffs. And exactly. because we've yeah. picked the exact correct ratio, doesn't matter what our opponent does, we leverage money out of our range naturally. It's called game theory optimal, called, baby. Let's exactly, go. exactly. Now, in game theory optimal, the kind of misconception about it is that it actually just breaks even. But in reality, it makes money because humans make blunders. Right? And, yes. And we, we, we naturally make money. Now, DJ alluded to it before, we'll, we'll cover briefly minimum defense. So minimum defense frequency is the kind of other side of the coin of this ratio that we're deploying. We're talking about the defender. So the, the equation for minimum defense frequency is pot over pot plus bet. Okay, so what that means is if our opponent does not call at this frequency, they lose money to our bluffs. They must defend at this frequency or they lose. And here's the kind of golden secret in poker. No one meets their minimum defense frequency. Like very, very few humans do it. Um, the two types of humans who do it are absolute calling station fish, which are going to exploit anyway, and like dog poke, like, <laughs> like, like high, high stakes heads up crushers meet their minimum defense, but no one else meets it, right? So to scale down and, and to, 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 to see the different sizes that we want to deploy, again, if we deploy 100%, we need two value hands for every one bluff. If we make our bet 75% of the pot, we need 2.33 for every one bluff, valued bluff. So two and a third. If we bet half pot, we need three value hands for every one bluff. So to recap um, the sizes, if we want to bet 100% of the pot, we need one bluff for every two value hands. If we want to use 75% of the pot, which is mainly what I use, honestly, is um, 2.3 bluffs to every one value hand. Oh, sorry, 2.3 value hands to every one bluff. 
apologies. And if we want to use a 50% sizing, we need three value hands to every one bluff. And you'll see, obviously, as the size gets bigger, the more bluffs we need in our range. Now, these ratios are, as Kieran said, the game theory optimal ratios. They're, they're the perfect ratios if we were playing against an alien from another planet or the best player in the world. It wouldn't matter. And they're extremely difficult to execute perfectly in-game. So we need to estimate, basically, in-game. So how do, how, do, how do we do that? How, how, how do we build our pattern recognition? How do we build our instinct for recognising what to bluff and what not to bluff? It's not like the flop and the turn where we're picking, let's say, high equity bluffs like flush draws or the bottom of our range. We just need to construct a frequency. And honestly, guys, there's there's two ways to do it. You can look at solver solutions. You can do that. Um, none of us really have access to a solver, so and it's a little advanced, so I wouldn't recommend it. The method I would recommend is open up Equilab, which I will put a link to in the show notes. It's a free program, and start punching in ranges and start training that pattern recognition. Start putting in flops and put in what you would value bet in the flop and what you would bluff turns and then get yourself to the river and see what ratio you're left with and i think dial to just to bring up a point there mm -hmm. i think an important thing for people to remember here and to be able to visualize this and to be able to grok it is the idea that as as the pleb poker saying goes but it's true truisms are often have a lot of value every hand tells a story right right so every action you and your opponent make it a hand assuming it's just two people restrict your range every single action narrows your range basically right. it's very very weird to have an action where your opponent now does not have any more information than they did on the previous action exactly right? and that means by the time that you get to the river the range is at its narrowest you should have a pretty good idea of what you're supposed to have here and what your opponent is supposed to have here if you're thinking about these previous concepts that we said about polarizing your range, mm -hmm. you know, about checking with some hands, betting with some other hands. That all tells a story, right? It all leads leads down to this final decision on the river. And the reason as well that Niall is stressing the sizing on the river when we didn't talk about it before is because the river is the, when the pot is the biggest, so it's when the biggest bet goes in, and it's the final decision basically of the game. Right. It's, it's, the, it's the one decision, if it goes that far, that goes, do you win or do you lose? Do they fold? Do they call? So... The idea here that we want you to remember, guys, is when you're putting in these ranges in Equilab, you can't just be like, uh, you know, let's say, let's say, let's talk about the classic uh, pot we talked about already, right? King, six, sure. deuce, rainbow. And let's say we're the aggressor and we see bet and they call the flop. And then let's uh, say we see bet again on the turn on a blank, like a f offsuit four or something like that. And they called again. And then let's say the river is an eight. Now, suddenly, we can't be like, well, I can bluff them off ace nine, right? Because there's no fucking way no on king six, king six, deuce, three, whatever I said, ten or whatever. There's no way that ace nine is still in the hand. So when you're putting these Equilab ranges together, mm -hmm. ace nine should not be in the, the opponent's, the villain's range here. Exactly. Only the hands they actually can have that they would have played this way should be in that range. That's the way we're thinking about it. Exactly. Yeah. What I actually do is I open up two Equilabs and I put in my range on, on one side and their range on the other. And I do mm. my action 
And then I pretend I'm my, I'm my opponent and I plug in their action. And we exactly. narrow down yeah. both ranges and we get to the end. And you're yeah. you're going to be able to naturally see guys with your own range where the value hands are. You're going to say, oh, that's a set. I bet that for value. There's two pair. Yeah. I bet that for value. So on, so on, so on. And you're going to see on different boards we, that we have more value bets than other boards. And this goes back to the concept of range advantage. So what you're going to notice that is that on some boards, we're value betting a ton. Let's go. That means on those boards, we also bluff a ton. And we're going to yes. use the ratio, as I said before, to construct our bluffing range. You're going to see in your Equilab how many combinations of value hands you have. Then you're just going to deploy the ratio. You're going to pick some hands to bluff with. And you can't do this with every spot. That's what, what makes poker so complex. But you're going to start training that pattern recognition. Next time you're in game and you see that spot or a spot similar, you're going to think, oh, I worked on that spot. I saw that ace-5 suited that missed was a bluff. And it's like, let's go. Let's bluff. And you'll, you're going to recognize that in other spots, you don't really have many value bets. And that means, ooh, if I don't have many value bets here, I should have far, far fewer bluffs also. So exactly. on some yeah. boards, like let's say boards that run out like four clubs, we'll notice that we're only value betting, let's say the ace of clubs and the king of clubs and maybe the queen of clubs. Mm -hmm. If we're only yeah. value betting that really subset of combos, how many bluffs can we really have? And therefore, like you'll, yeah. everyone's gone through these hands, right? Where it's like, like you said, four clubs and three Broadway cards. Mm. And let's say you've made like a king high straight on that board. Right. Are you even comfortable value betting that hand? Probably on not. The river? Exactly. Probably not. You're probably just checking it. So... If like if you have like an extremely nutted hand like that and you don't even want to bet it, how can you bluff? Like you know what I mean? Right. It's it's ridiculous. Exactly. So it's it's good to think about and and guys, this what I was saying. I will also say, this will also make you so much better at being in the other position, 100%. being the the caller in the hand, because you'll start to realize, hang on, like they're betting here, they're triple barring me here, but like how many bluffs do they actually have on this board? Exactly. You know what I mean? Like, there was all these draws missed. The highest card is, like, a 10. So, like, how many sets of 10s do they have? You know what I mean? It's, it's like, how many nutted hands can they possibly have that they're they're betting here with versus how many bluffs? Where, is it, where if it's on the dry board we said before, the you know, the King 6-2, blah, blah. If they're suddenly barreling on that and they're fucking, uh, you know, they're blasting off with that, you're like, okay, well, this isn't a very bluff-heavy board for them either. Right, you know, like how do I take that into consideration? Exactly. So becoming better at bluffing also makes you better at hero calling and knowing one hundred percent. Yeah, and that's that is the core. That is the core point of GTO is that GTO is not about learning how to play like a robot. It's learning where the baselines are, so that when we're in game, we recognize how far away from the baseline our opponents are. And, and people it, will fuck up. People will 100%. fuck up so majorly. Yeah. 100%. Yeah. Every time I open Equilab and I do this type of study, I get almost every time a Eureka moment. It's like, holy shit, the population are doing this here. It's like, that's that's ridiculous. Yeah. And I was doing this yeah. before, all this time. You know, and yeah. you don't know. So now that we've got these kind of perfect ratios, how do we change them in game to make money? Like, so in theory, these ratios break even and that's okay because we deploy them when we don't know about, about our opponent but how do we change these to, to make money 
So there, there are three ways we can do this, okay? So the first way is we can adjust our bet size when our opponent's range is inelastic. So what this means is that if our opponent would call a 75% bet just as often as they would call a 50% pop bet, then we want to be betting bigger with our value and smaller with our bluffs. Very simple. Yep. Like, why not just get that extra 25% off them? Exactly, yeah. The second point would be adjusting our sizing of our um, our bet based on opponent tolerance. So this means that we're going to recognize that our opponent has a certain almost pain tolerance to a certain size. So we know that they're going to call like their bluff catchers with, say, a 60% pot bet, but they're going to fold most of them with a 75% or something like that. Now, and then the reverse is true of value. We can go small for value, that type of thing. Now, yeah. I, I want to put a huge, huge disclaimer on this one. This is the riskiest, most explorative type of adjustment you can make on the river. This can be spotted a mile away. If you're if you're playing against anyone in any way competent, do not do this. We're using this against the fishiest of fish. You'll see us do this in like the home games, you know, on Poker Stars, but... I, I honestly don't do this too much in regular tournaments, honestly. And when we're deep in a tournament, I almost never do it, quite honestly. Gotcha. Yeah. The most effective adjustment we can make is the third type, would be to adjust our actual ratio. So we're keeping our bet size the same. We're using a consistent bet size. Let's say my bet size on the river is going to be 75% on dry boards. I'm adjusting my ratio so that I add more bluffs to my ratio when I think my opponent's full too much which in multi-table tournaments, for example, is almost universal. So against the population, I'm bluffing yep. too much. But yep. we're not we're not giving our game away by our sizing. We're using the ratio within our sizing to bluff more, basically. 100%. So that, yep. that, that, that last one is the one we use in modern poker the most, <clears throat> most of the time, basically. So I'm going to give you guys some examples of bluffs now as we said the best way to do this on the river is to go into the lab and start punching in ranges honestly but there are kind of some heuristics we can use in game that indicate that we might have a good bluffing spot so the first one i'll talk of three hand examples here and we're going to assume guys that we just agree with all the action up to the river we're not going to really discuss any of the action beforehand we're just going to assume it's i played it perfect (laughs) yeah exactly yeah so the first one we have is the blocker's hand, or we're, we're, we're going to go over a triple barreling, a lug tug, lug tug special for you guys. Let's go. And let's see, say we have a, a hand like 10-9 in middle position. We have 10-9. And we raise, and the big blind cuts. And the board is queen, eight, seven. Suits don't matter in this case, and we decide to bet flop. Absolutely fine. Turn comes an eight giving us an up and down straight draw and we decide to bet again as DJ was discussing before absolutely fine and then the river comes a three so what we want to think about here is how we're blocking or unblocking the opponent's perceived range we with our 10-9 block king 10 queen 10, king 9 queen 9 which are all perfectly reasonable parts of the, the big blinds range and those are the hands we don't want them to have. We don't want them to have top pair here. So yep. we also unblock 
the hands we're actually targeting with our bluff. If your hand's like a seven, seven six, seven five, seven four, six six, five five, four four, all those hands we, our hand doesn't interact with those hands. So, the latter set of hands is all a set of hands that could conceivably call, flop and turn, but you're very easily going to, to to fold river. So we're using our our blockers there to target the hands we want to fold and to un and to block those we want we don't want them to have. And note, just yeah. as a small note here, that our opponent can't have ace-king or ace-queen or jacks or tens or nines in this spot because they're going to re-raise those pre-flop. At some point, they would have raised these. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. right. So yeah. um, that's just a clear example of a triple bar- barrel where we've chosen our blockers in our hand to, to make this hand part of our bluffing range. Mm-hmm. Uh, example two is the bottom of our range. Again, this is a point that DJ touched on uh, in the turn betting and the flop betting when we're at the bottom of, bottom of our range especially on the river it usually turns into a good spot to bluff because we're going again we're going to have to pick something to bluff and being at the bottom of our range is an indication that um, this is a good candidate so we're going to use this one um, let's say we're in middle position and we have pocket deuces and we're going to raise love it, love it pocket deuces and <laughs> the, uh, yeah, the, button, the button calls and the board oh, no. <laughs> is the button calls. So tricky one here. And the board is king nine three, and we decide to to see bet. Perfectly fine. Yep. The turn is a king, and we're gonna we're gonna bet again, and we'll we'll leave whether this is good or bad, but we'll bet again. I think it's good. I, I think it's good. good. But yeah. Uh, yeah. Again, we're trying to fold out something like sevens, sixes, five fours, mm-hmm. uh, jack ten, queen ten, nine x, those types of hands. Absolutely fine to yep. bet with our pocket deuces. And then imagine the river's a three. So the board is now king, king, nine, three, three. And our deuces are counterfeited here. Meaning we we cannot win the hand unless we bet. We literally are, but we're playing the board. We're there. playing we the board. We can only right? chop. We can't win a showdown. Exactly, exactly. Now our deuces are a really good candidate for a bluff. So this is, we're bluffing here and we're, we're targeting a nine, basically. Or sevens, yeah. six, five, so we can legitimately get a nine to fold here, and that's a legitimate part of the range. And we're yeah. not we're not blocking any of the hands. We're not blocking any nines. They're not going to have nine deuce, right? We're not. No. We're not. Yeah, of course, yeah. We're not going to. We're not blocking sevens. We're not blocking eights. We're not blocking fours, five, sixes. We're not blocking any of those hands. So this becomes a a pretty good blocker hand. To, to bet with mm-hmm. and B we're at the smack bang bottom of our range so may as well bluff and try to take this may as well bluff. We, literally, we literally can't win otherwise right so exactly how can you not bluff and I and I will say it's also fine to give up here if you just have a read that of your course. opponent is not going to fold yeah then, do, then don't bet like there is an exploitative part to this as well that we're not talking about mm-hmm. but in this situation sometimes you just know they snap call twice you know what I mean they're just like call call are they really folding to, to the second three on the river then right. in that circumstance? Maybe you have a timing tell. Maybe you just know the player. Maybe you know their tendencies. Maybe you have a stat on them. Whatever it is, there's some exploit that you're you're using here. We're not, we're not saying always bluff this exact combo in this ex- exact spot 100% of the time. Right. In every hand, you still want to be using your brain and you want to be using your study as well as like your study of the human you're playing against to figure out what to do. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. So... um. Good... The reason we the reason we're not talking about exploits is because 
it's very inconsistent. There's no way for us to teach you guys that, basically. Sure, so, exactly. Yeah. A, a decent rule of thumb would be when bluffing, think of the kind of range of hands that you want to be targeting with this bluff. And in, on this king nine, king king nine three three, we want to be targeting nines, of course. Uh, yep. Ace high, we definitely want to target those, and then all yep. the under pairs. If our opponent yep. can't conceivably fold Ace high here, which a lot of them won't, absolutely yep. not. You should never. Bluff. You should you not should be bluffing bluff. here because that yep. constitutes a big, big chunk of that bluff catching range that our opponent has. And we and can, that's me, by the way. This, I'm the type of player I will call here saying, a lot of the time with Ace high. Yeah. So against yeah. me, you probably shouldn't bluff here, sure. even even though it makes sense. You know. So yeah. let's just. So people understand, you know, it's, it's yeah, yeah. And, um, what you're... but also I'm never bluffing. Also, I'm never bluffing. <laughs> the lies, the lies. <laughs> so I, yeah, what you're saying there, Karen, is true. Um, poker is kind of this mix between the study work, the theory, and then the in-game kind of Sherlock Holmes deduction. And it's about putting yeah. those two things together, really. And my argument has, has always been the more study you do, the better you get at being Sherlock Holmes. One hundred percent. One hundred percent. Yeah. There's a there's a great chess quote that I read when I uh, when I was learning chess. I might have said this in the podcast before, but uh, so you know, a tactic in chess is when you you make a move that say forks two pieces, so they just don't have a good move. You're going to win a piece or something like that. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Or you pin you pin a piece to their king, so you can't move it, so they win it. You mm-hmm. know, it's it's just a, a decisive move that they didn't see that is going to win you uh, give you an advantage, basically. Right. And there's a great quote from a chess world champion. I think it was maybe Emmanuel Lasker. I'm not sure. And he said, tactics flow from having a a superior position. And what that means is, if you're good at the fundamentals of chess, you will just find yourself in good positions that just overflow with good moves, good tactics. It's not like you're a genius that finds the better tactics because, because you have a huge brain you're putting the groundwork in there to put yourself in the situation where there are more good moves than bad moves. You Absolutely. know what I mean? And poker, poker's the same. Yep. Of course, there's still an element to it of, you know, as we said, you got to read your opponent, you got to make that decision. But if you're playing fundamentally well, if you have this solidity to your gameplay, yep. you're, the decisions are not going to be hard most of the time. Right. You know? Yeah. If you could play, if you could program yourself to play like a GTO robot, um, in theory, you should break even, but in reality, you'd be the biggest crusher that ever lived, because of course, yeah. humans make blunders. And f- yeah. a point I made in our Discord when one one of the guys was saying that the fundamentals aren't great, poker's all fundamentals. That's it, it's yeah, all that's fu- it. the whole yeah. game is fundamentals, and it's a simple game. It's a very simple yeah. Game. It, it's like simple yet complex. It's one of those weird ones, yeah. but like the way to work at poker is to work on fundamentals. That's that's what you do. Yeah. Um, I'll I'll move on. I was want to bring in case DJ you have anything to say so far, or are you happy? No, no, I I think it's been great so far. I have nothing to add here. Cool. All cool. right. Third example is um we want to be bluffing against a cap range, or um kind of goes hand in hand when the range advantage shifts from one player to the other. To us, mainly. <laughs> so, it's a good time to, to bluff on the river when a card shifts range advantage from our opponent to us, hitting hands that we would have been putting money in on flops and turns. Mainly bluffs, or, or, or sometimes calls. So, let's, let's give an example of this. It's way easier with an example. Let's say we're in the big blind, and the small blind raises, and we're going to call with seven of diamonds, five of diamonds. 
Okay, perfectly reasonable call. The flop comes queen, eight, six with two clubs. We have no clubs and there's a diamond on board. So we have a gut shot straight draw. Sorry, we have an up down, up and down straight draw and backdoor diamonds. And the small blind bet, so, so small blind bets, and we decide to, to call. Now, as DJ said earlier, this would actually be a really good candidate for a raise. But in this example, we're going to call. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The turn comes the king of diamonds, giving us the up and down straight draw and the two di- the four diamonds. So we have a straight flush draw. Again, the small blind bets, and again we call. And yes, once more, this would be a great candidate to raise. But in this example, we're going to call. And then the river is the ace of clubs and the small blind checks. Now, what is this ace of clubs doing to the two ranges? If the small blind had an ace, had two pair, had a set, had clubs themselves, they would bet. And they did not. And therefore, their range is now capped. That's it. They, They don't have these hands because they would bet them. Sometimes they're going to check them with the, the intention of raising, but the vast majority of the time, they're going to bet these hands for value. We, on the other hand, we can reasonably have a flush. We could be calling the whole time with two clubs. We could have ace-x of diamonds that decided to float the turn and has now hidden ace. We could have aces up. We could have two pair. We have uh, ace-six, for example, that we decided to float the turn with. So the board now favours our range, and it's a perfect, perfect candidate to now bet and take our opponent off a king or a queen, which they would reasonably reasonably bet on the flop or turn. Our opponent, just before you talk, uh, Kieran has a lot of natural folds here as well. King, or sorry, queen jack, sorry, jack 10, 10, 9, all those types of hands are really natural folds here as well. Yeah, I just want to say it's like when you see this type of check, if you're thinking about the range advantage, if you're thinking about what they should have, this is like a very hopeful check from from Billy. Really hopeful. Like, yep. they really just want to get to showdown. They, sh- as you said, they shouldn't have many check raises. Like, a, like maybe twenty percent of the time, their check raising was here. Mm-hmm. So, a bluff here against the capped range, as you said, is just dominating. Yep. It's just so hard for them to call. It's you know, and they almost never have a call. I think they have a fold or a raise here, basically. Pretty much, um, they're gonna fold all their queens. Pretty much here. And their yeah. population just going to fold most of their kings, honestly. Exactly. Yeah, yeah that's it. and that's the insane thing is even the stuff that's not supposed to fold in GTOs, we said, mm-hmm. is going to fold yep. in in most of the games you guys will play in your lives in poker. Like people, people find it really, really hard to make these marginal calls on these type of boards. Yep. Um, and that's something you should exploit. That's the beauty of bluffing. Is like we're telling you, like, here's the exact ratio of bluffs you could do, except for actually it's way more profitable than you even think people play so bad. <laughs> yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah. And as as we've said before, and I'll keep hammering home at it, think about the spot from your opponent's perspective. Think about yes. what you do in that spot. Think about the amount of times we've done Hand of the Week and we see an ace of clubs on the river and it goes, oh, that's that's the worst card in the deck for you, man. That's the worst card. That... That's what our opponents are thinking in game. And it's yep. the worst card in the deck because we get to blow it. <laughs> that's, exactly, that's it. exactly. You know. Yep. So... A final thought on bluffing on the river. Some examples there of um, when to bluff and some general theory about how we construct our range in bluffing. And we're going to talk about the fabled uh, check raise, check raise bluff. So this is my favorite 
personal favourite spicy spot in poker. We get to check and raise the river as a bluff. The, the river check raise bluff. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stop you there, Niall. It's never been done. There is no recorded time this has ever been done in a game of poker. <laughs> I, uh, I noticed a correlation between my results and how much I'm doing this because it's a, it's a criminally underused underused spot because the population just don't do it no one check raises bluffs on the river no one does it no it's always value it's, it's always value yeah like you always call anyway and you lose <laughs> exactly exactly yeah. Yeah. so my tip would be in general to fold a bunch when your opponent does it and do it a bunch yourself because they have they always fold <laughs> so i mean they always fold but like the problem is if we still want to think in terms of fold equity, it's so high risk. Ratio, yeah. It's so hard to ever have any fold equity when you raise river. Cause like also like it's just such a disaster if people call because like, because the river is the most expensive spot and the bets are the biggest. It's like so crushing if you ever get it wrong. Yeah. You just, you just like, it's a, it's a train wreck. So I agree, but like, for I think for amateur players, for the people that are listening to this podcast, I actually would be like, never do it. Yeah. See, if you never yeah. check raise bluff the river, you would still be fine in poker. Yeah. You honestly, yeah. honestly, it's, you it's, could be you could be like a mid sticks crushing tournament player and have never done this ever in your life. You'd be fine. That's kind of that's kind of where I'm at because yeah. I'm like, it's one of those spots where I think yes, if you can do it, it's very profitable. But if you ever fuck it up, it it will decimate your win rate so badly yeah. that. I, I'm just like air on the side of court, well, caution and never do it. I, I think know, that's absolutely yeah, fair. Yeah. There's a bunch of yeah. spots. In, okay, I'm going to leave it at that then. Um, because mm. I was going to give you an example, but I'm going to leave it out. Because I, I think okay. I agree with you, Karen. I think there are a bunch of spots in poker where if we just simplify our strategy and do the good thing, we're doing already better than adding all these yeah. adding all these bells and whistles to our fucking strategy. We, we don't have to find the best thing 10% of the time if we're doing a fine thing 100% of the time. Absolutely, yeah. no problem. So yeah. the solution to that then is never check raise your value hands on the river. Just bet them. Just, just bet. Basically, yeah. Just bet I, your I, I actually hands. agree with that as well. And I fall for this so much. I actually do this a lot. And I'm just like, oh, this is the perfect board texture. They have to bluff bet here. And, and they, they never, never do. do. Yep. They never fucking do. Yep. Like, they'll have, like, third pair, and they just never do it. And they have top pair, and they never do it. And they have air, and they never do it. And I'm just like, it's insane to me. So I'm just like, you should just, it is one of these simple things, and this is totally exploitative, completely away from GTO. Just bet your good hands in the river. 100%. Sometimes people will call, and the times they do, you make so much money. That's it. There was one of my favorite tweets ever from a poker player is Olivier, Olivier, Olivier Bousquet, who's a <clears throat> heads-up sit-and-go player. The tweet read something like, you study the GTO, you, you run the simulations, you construct your ranges, you figure out which hands to call with, which hands to fold, and you hit your minimum defense frequency, and they never bluff. Oh, <laughs> and, that's it. and you did all that work and it didn't matter because they don't try to bluff you and if there's a takeaway from the podcast guys population never bluffs so you should exactly no and that's a, that's a perfect way to put it that's it okay guys this is the longest episode we've ever done um i hope you guys got something out of it uh dj do you have anything to add about the, the ending there or are we happy to uh the to the only this? thing i will add is that Niall, you're a genius. I feel like I've gotten better just from listening. 
do 100%. that. Hundred um, percent. That was a seminar so. that that people should have been happy to pay for. Honestly, like uh, Niall, yeah. as a, I said at the top of the episode, like when you fully get something, when you grok something, you're so good at explaining it, and I think that's a, a perfect example of that. Thank you so much, yeah. guys. Congratulations to everyone because that was a bit of a monster. So well done, guys. Too. Yeah. If if yeah, anybody if you guys got through this, wow. Yeah. Fair play. Please please uh, please tweet at us if you uh, if you actually managed to get through this and i hope i hope a lot of people did because i think i think this has been a really interesting discussion and i think i think we've done a pretty good job thanks not very to, much guys uh, for the not to suck our own dicks but uh i think i think we've uh if i would i, I could I, dj I, I think if i would i, <laughs> I, I, mean, uh, I think like we've done Marla a good job marla manson's just been cancelled so someone else has to pick it up the, the self dick sucking right pocket juices steps up to the plate oh, there's gonna be so many young people who don't understand that reference because it's like a playground fucking boomer thing it is yeah yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> but whatever yeah but guys uh i think another just one that one thought i had as well that came to me during the show as well is there were so many moments during this episode where we were trying to explain bluffing and we had to talk about value betting or we had to talk about checking or we had to talk about like other actions you could take or other contexts. And that's the beauty of poker. And we went off topic a little bit, kind of, but it kind of shows that like in order to be good at poker, you have to understand everything. You Like you can't just be like, I'm good at bluffing. In order to be good at bluffing, you have to be good at value betting. In order to be good at value betting, you have to be good at checking medium strength hands. It's all part of the one thing. And Niall, I think you said this the best to me before, where the more you learn about poker, you realize that every concept that you learn about and improve at feeds into every other single concept. It's all part of the one thing. Yep. And I I hope we gave you guys a little bit of that today. Um, I'm very proud of this episode. I'll say that. I I think we did. Well done, lads. So, pat on the back for us. Well done, lads. Okay, guys, that's going to be us for for this week. Thank you for listening to this almost three hours of content that we provided you for free. We don't have a Patreon, but feel free to send us cans of Beamish in the post or something if you want. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, and we'll see you next week. Cheers, guys. See you later, guys. Okay, guys, well done for getting this far. We have a little bit of fun to finish this off. We are going to talk about uh, funny or crazy moments from tournaments that we've ever had. Um, I've got one or two, or from any anything, really. Uh, who wants to start us? I can start it if you want. It's up to you guys. Go ahead, go ahead and start. Give, give everybody a feel of what we're in for. All right, sure. So I'll give you... I, I, I actually don't know if I've told you this Guys, I think I've told DJ, but possibly not Kieran. This is one of the harshest judge calls I've ever seen. It was a po- it was a, oh, it was it. a poker tournament. So the setting is it's a live poker tournament down in the Green Isle Hotel in outside Dublin. I think it's in Tallaght or something. Yeah, it's in some some fucking like desolate fucking yeah. <laughs> corporate business estate somewhere. Yeah, yeah it's Christ. it's the, it's yeah, off the motorway. it's the corporate hotel, right? And uh, there's a poker tournament here. I've won a ticket and I go down and play. It's a 200 euro entry or 220 euro entry. And there's about 150 people play this thing. It's pretty pretty big. There's a 30k prize pool. Um, I did not cash. But we're 
the situation is I've, I've joined a new table and I've played this table for about an hour. Um, there is a older lady um, who has been nursing a short stack and has not played a single hand in an hour. And the action goes, fold, fold, older lady in third position shoves in her, th- uh, declares that she is all in and okay. is in the action of putting her chips into the middle. And as soon as she says all in, the two players to her left go full fold, right, really quickly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the dealer, in a moment of automation, muscle memory, grabs her hand, mocks it, mocks the next hand, mocks the next hand. Oh, no. And it, it, this all happens within half a second. And she goes, yeah. oh, no, 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 wait, my hand. And she starts to get into an argument with the dealer. Oh. And the dealer says, protect your hand at all times, your hand's mocks hands mucked and she said I was protecting my hand my hand was literally over my cards and you slipped them out from un- under my hand as it were right wow. it was literally like as fast as you like right yeah, yeah. and me and another guy to my right who seemed like a, a kind of reg himself said whoa, 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 whoa stop this right now get the floor right now and we're, you know yeah. we're not having an argument with the dealer here we're calling the floor yeah get the floor yeah so the action left to go was the hijack, me on the button, small blind, big blind. And the ruling that floor gives is the cards are dead, but the bet's alive. What? What do you guys think of this? Uh, what does that even mean? As in, as in her, her hand is dead, she has no cards, but the bet is live. As in, we can all play for now the pot. That's one of the worst rulings I've ever heard. Yeah, yeah. I, 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 I don't that. understand how that's possible in the rules of poker. I know floors can do what they want in poker, but that's completely outrageous. And she says, like, "Look, I can." So her argument was, "I can tell you my exact two cards. You can go through the yeah. muck now, and and re- these guys can tell you their cards probably as well, right? Exactly, so, and you can retrieve my cards. Yeah. And the floor argues that this is exploitable because, in theory, she could say. I had King of Spades, King of Diamonds. And if the King of Spades and King of Diamonds are in the mucks, she has 15 big blinds in with Kings. Now, I stepped in here, which maybe I should should or should not have done, and said, well, it's not really exploitable because it's in her best interest to tell the truth. Because yeah. if she lies... She'll be DQ'd if she's lying. Yeah. If she lies, she'll be DQ'd. And B, her yeah. hand will be dead anyway. So it's yeah. in her best interest to tell the truth and try to get her equity in this pot. Right? Yeah. Floor, Floor's having none of it, right? Floor says, her bet's live, the cards are dead. The four of us now, who are still in the hand, are now saying, what What do we What do? We do? What's the right thing to do here? Um, any thoughts? I mean, we're now saying, well, we should just, like the guy to my right says, well, I have, I have trash, I'll fold. I look at my hand and say, well, I have trash, I think I'm going to fold. And we now have a nightmare situation. The four of us are now having a conversation about, about hand the, the hand strength in the in in the pot, this is a disaster on a disaster, and it's a disaster on a disaster. I don't know. For me, okay. So the GTO thing to do here, if like all you care about is being competitive and making money, is probably just a raise, and it's probably the most plus EV raise of your life, sure. <laughs> um, yeah. or just shove. Probably the best shove of your yeah. life with any two yeah. cards. Um, 
I think in this situation I would fold and I would, I don't know if this counts as collusion, but I think I would like to tell the table that for the integrity of the game, I think it would be best if everyone folded. And then if I'm correct, that woman would then win the hand despite having dead cards, right? Because correct. Everyone else folded. What, what would you do, dude? So, but, but I don't know if you're allowed to tell people that or if you can just... Yeah, I think I think that does enter into collusion, collusion. territory. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, like I, I, th- I think the ruling is ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Um, I think you are actively uh, turning people away from ever entering a poker tournament. Absolutely. Ever again, uh, with so that terrible. ruling. Um, so the ideal scenario is that nobody has a playable hand here and everybody folds and lady gets her money and everything's fine. Um, if I look down at aces, though, then all of a sudden, like I think that's fine. You know, I, I, but that's fine. But that's fine uh, because you would have shoved aces anyway, and you would have been a favorite anyway. So I think you don't have to feel too bad. She would have had twenty percent equity. Or yeah. Something so she's like she's but, only lo- losing twenty percent of her stack there. Yeah. If that makes sense. Yeah. yeah. But if you have like jack ten off, <laughs> and you wake up with that, yeah. and you're like. This is very attractive to shove now. You know what I mean? What's the line of yeah. the hands I think I'm crushing against this woman's range? You know, that's very blurry because aces yeah. is not the line. So yeah, I think like I that's think such an interesting story. All I've never yeah, heard something like this. That's so insane. Um, like I think what uh, the morally correct thing here to do is just play as if that ruling was never given in the first place, and the lady has. Uh, live cards. Totally agree. Totally agree with that. And that's kind of the way it played out. The guy to my set left, or my right, sorry, he said, well, I have muck, I'm going to fold anyway. And I looked down at my hand, it was muck, and I said, well, I would have folded this anyway, I have, I have muck. Small blind folds his muck, and then the big blind has now an interesting decision. The big blind now gets to call their entire range and make 15 big blinds. Yep. So this is disgusting. Um, the big blind hums and has and shrugs and kind of Size and the hijack who's the guy next to me shouts at him be a gentleman fold your hand <laughs> yeah what, that's what i was about to think but if he mocks what happens the lady wins the the blinds because the bet is live because the bet's live interesting right. yeah sorry yeah. so she wins the wow. blinds uh which is okay which, i think in the fairness, big blind in that situation in fairness, that was going to be the result anyway we all had mark we were all yes. going to fold she was going to win sure two blinds that's a handover okay. i think they're if I okay, like obviously, if I have aces there as the big blind, I'm flipping it over yeah. and being like, if I have, I'm, I'm if I'm the big blind and I have any hand that I would call the fifteen blind big blind shove with, I'm calling. However, I almost but wanted to turn around. There's, yeah, there's no what's the line there. If you're just like I'm very loose, I would call this with jack seven off. Totally, you know what I mean. I was, I, I was, you know? I was a hair away because the guy to my right, me, and the two guys to my left seemed reggy to me and i was a hair away from turning around saying lads what are we calling with this come on you know yeah. 15 big blinds from an old woman it's 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 aces kings queens and ace king not to be sexist and ageist but that's what it was and i think the old man coffee is this correct she was an old knit and the correct thing to do yeah. was to fold our entire range apart from the very five top five percent that that's the right thing yeah. if i'm the big blind with pocket tens all right i'll call you you know but it's I don't want to, but I am. And, you know, uh, and anyways, everyone folds. 
the money goes to her and the tournament director says, thanks for being gentlemen about that, lads. It would have been nice to get a proper ruling instead of having mob rule. So he gets to look great because you guys did the right yep. thing. And then he he's like, I'm a, I'm a genius and I knew you guys would do that. So I got to give this ruling. That's what he's yeah, saying. Well, Fuck you. Yeah. What a shit tournament <laughs> organizer. What a shit floor yep. Fuck you. What if he was dealing with four scumbags? Yeah, exactly. I yeah. don't know. Then he just walks away and he goes, my ruling is my ruling. You know, he doesn't get to give the smug statement. And that person is knocked out of this tournament and probably never registers another tournament with him again. And that's, that's that, that done. Yeah. That's it. Horrible. Awful. <laughs> Awful. Crazy. Yeah. Okay. Um, um, DJ, so, you go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll go for a happy story to balance that mm-hmm. out. And when I say happy, it's not happy in any way, shape or form. It's just hilarious at the expense of one of our good friends um so this was nationals 2008 again in tala i believe this was um it was at a hotel um across the road from the tala football stadium um i remember that because real madrid's were supposed to have a friendly like the day after nationals finished there and cristiano ronaldo is coming over and everything yeah pretty cool but um the friday before national starts um, I'm rooming with uh, one of the old Northern players, Eddie O'Kane, and this uh, young up-and-comer who had won Nationals the year before, Connor Kerr. Um, Care Bear, as he's affectionately known in friend circles, he does not have a room for the night. Naturally. And he asks us, hey, uh, can I crash on your floor? Like, yep, yeah, that's absolutely fine. No worries, Connor. So Friday night rolls around and Eddie and I are pretty tired. And we're like, okay, we're going to get a good night's sleep here before the start of the tournament tomorrow. Connor, are you coming? Connor has uh, latched on to another group from the north, um, including uh, Shondro Mooney, who has brewed his own bottle of pochin. And for anybody who does not know what pochin is, uh, potato vodka, brewed it in his bathtub, brought it down to the hotel. And Connor's like, yeah, I really want to try this stuff. So uh, I, th- I think I'm think i going to stay down here and uh, have, have a few shots of that. No worries. See you later, Connor. So we go to bed at about 10 o'clock. And then I want to say maybe an hour later, uh, get a knock on the door. It's Connor. Like, oh, hey, Connor, you're coming to bed. Like, yeah, 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 I'm coming to bed. I'm, I'm pretty drunk. Um, like, yep, that's that sounds about right, uh, given the probably just like white spirit that you just dined <laughs> um fair enough to be clear uh, by the way uh, there's there's a lot of safe ways of brewing moonshine <laughs> Pochin, if you've never done it before is not a good one because raw potato fermented produces a lot of methanol which is the thing that fucking makes you go blind right so if you want to do this shit even if you're an irish person if you want to make fucking moonshine do it with oranges in your bathtub it Ooh. produces no methanol and you'll have a very cheap disgusting let's spirit. go yeah um so yeah uh connor uh he's kind of groggy but he lies down on the floor and he's like right night guys and then about five seconds after his head's hit the pillow he's like guys i i, I don't feel so good and we say connor um it's fine just go to sleep um you'll be a little worse for wear in the morning but it's fine, don't worry. And he's like, yeah, you're right, guys. That's fine. Another five seconds pass, and Connor is up like a bolt and straight to the bathroom. 
one of the uh, things about our hotel room uh, was that for some reason the electric just decided on a whim whether it was going to work or not. So at this moment in time, our electric was not working and he was completely in the dark. So he's run straight into this bathroom, has no idea where the toilet is, and proceeds to vomit all over our bathroom floor. Yeah. We well, can hear... We, yeah, well, we at can, least he was in the bathroom. Yeah. At least he was in the bathroom. Uh, we can hear the sound of vomit hitting tile and everything. <laughs> A familiar sound. Don't, don't hear any water splashing whatsoever. Just lots of vomit hitting the floor. So... This was back in 2008, so I think we all had flip phones. So uh, f- flipped the phone, got a little bit of light off the screen, and walk into the bathroom. And we can see Connor lying on the bathroom floor, surrounded by vomit. Uh, Connor, this is not acceptable. <laughs> we are not paying for any cleaning fees that come out of this. You have to do something about this. And he's like, yep, that's that's fair enough. <laughs> he's lying Let on the floor. It's like, do. that's totally yep. reasonable. <laughs> Let me see what I can do. So he reaches into his own shorts, pulls out his own flip phone, flips it open, gets a little bit of light off his phone, and starts, like, he uses up all our toilet roll to start, like, mopping up. Oh, no. It doesn't work. That's not a good not a good system. I'll exactly. Away. Does, yeah. d- does not work. But he gets, like, three seconds of light off his phone. Every three seconds, he has to, like, close the phone, <laughs> and start... <laughs> mopping up more vomit oh, no. and we eddie and i just kind of look at each other and we're like okay this is going to take a while let's just go back to bed it'll be sorted by the morning and i agree we get back into beds and about 20 30 minutes later connor walks out and he's like yeah i uh, I, I think i'm done and sorted. we go in we check um he is not done by any way i'm <laughs> like connor please sort this right now so connor says yep I, I i've got this guys so you know those like uh in hotels the way you get like uh char gel dispensers it's yeah. basically like the hand sanitizer stuff you see in like supermarkets and stuff now you push the button yeah, yeah. and yeah, yeah. stuff comes out so connor um pushes that a bunch of times gets basically floods the floor with char gel takes off his shorts and starts mopping up the remaining vomit and char gel with his shorts, which has now Again, started... Not, not <laughs> now as uh, absorbent as no. tissue paper even, which didn't work the previous time. So no. this is an interesting no. maneuver. So, um, yeah, this has now started to form a paste oh, no. on the floor. <laughs> and So he's also we... now naked and covered in his own vomit. Yes, that that, that is exactly what's happening. Yeah. So... We, again, kind of like sigh, look at each other, like, that. I mean, we, we don't want to get involved with cleaning up vomit. Like, let, let, let's just let's just leave it at that. And Connor somehow miraculously manages to clean up all this with his vomit shorts. And the bathroom, despite smelling like absolute hell, um, it's clean. You know, you, you, unless you find unless you inspected you know behind some nooks and crannies and find some you know chunks you wouldn't have known anything happened yeah the staff were probably like oh they probably just killed someone in there and disposed of the body it's exactly that's how champions do it they get it done (laughs) yep Yep. defending national champion connor care says okay 
that, that that'll do. I'm going to bed. But we still have this problem of vomit-covered shorts in our room. The story's not over, I just realized. Oh, no. <laughs> so, Con- Connor says, okay, I-, I can deal with this. And we have a balcony in our hotel room. He goes out to the balcony and, you know, maybe the GTO line is leaving the shorts out in the balcony. Oh, no. He does not do that. He proceeds to throw the shorts over the balcony onto the street below. That would be me as a drunk person. Yeah, 100%. Get rid of the problem. We're done. Perfect yeah. solution. Yeah. yeah. So Connor Kerr all of a sudden has no shorts and goes to sleep for the night. And we all go to sleep for the night. And the story ends when we wake up the next morning and think, hey, didn't you throw a bunch of a pair of your shorts over the balcony? What happened to them? We go out and have a look and they're gone. Somebody's taken them. <laughs> Free shorts? Seems very so, so, unlikely. Seems they, unlikely, but okay. They, 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 they are gone. The shorts are gone. Uh, I like to think that a cleaner of some form, like a street cleaner, came along, saw them, had a really bad morning as a result, but, you know, th- threw them away, as opposed to some other drunk person walking down the street, finding a pair of shorts and thinking, I would like these shorts. I think they would look good on me. Um, Connor Kerr top aided that Nationals um, so fair play there you go There you go. amazing what people can do while out of their skulls isn't it <laughs> sort of a, it's almost like he had just sort of like a really intense like peyote trip or something like that the night before you know really cleansed his mind and body yeah. of yeah, toxins like, uh, yeah. all the all the nonsense thoughts are now out of his mind and he can focus on all thoughts he's just pure instinct yeah. playing magic like, the he, next he, day he, he shaking on, like... you know literally can you imagine like literally just like, like can't uh, grasp the cards just just try to slap them it was it was like he'd been on a vision quest the night before mm-hmm. and he, he he'd find god on said vision quest and yeah played like a champion all weekend fair play connor care friend friend of the show there you go, friend of the well show. Done, Connor. And uh, Connor, please don't sue me. I had nothing to do with this story going out on the podcast. <laughs> this is all DK's fault. <laughs> oh, no, all go. right, so moving on to me. Yeah, I've been mean, very good mix of stories so far, so I'm not even sure where to go on the story level now, whether to go more in Niles, kind of positive but interesting. Well, not positive. Well, there was positivity with, you know, sure. the, the players being being uh, playing with etiquette. And DJ is just... Uh, just it's like a Saw movie or something that, I, that we just heard about. It was just absolutely horrible. I have a very short one, which is the biggest fuck-up I've ever made in my That's life, good. I think. And I've made many. We've all made many. Come on, Makes guys. It's a, it's a friendly chat here. So I used to host Street Fighter tournaments. I used to play in them as well. But it was all hands on deck for them. Uh, there was no um, program. Like, like with Magic, Wizards, you know, host the WPN and they are responsible for the tournaments and there's a judge program and it's all official that doesn't exist with fighting games it's just the community whoever lugs their backpack with an xbox and their controller and the game disc in it to the tournament you need 16 of those people showing up to the event of their own free will just so the event can run for it to happen that's that's how fighting game tournaments work with monitors as well uh there was a lad shout outs to cyrus delaney who literally brought a 32 inch crt from Cork on the train to Dublin every month uh, for a tournament with an Xbox in his backpack and a giant fucking he ca- literally carried a fucking gigantic TV. That's that's what we Love used to it. do. 
And this is like 2009, 2010. I'm not talking about like the old, I mean, that is the old days. I'm a boomer, but you know what I mean? That's like, that's not too long ago. So uh, one of the tournaments that we had was a Street Fighter 4 tournament in a now sadly gone space called The Exchange in Temple Bar in Dublin, which I remember very fondly because as a little kid, when I was like 12, I used to play Counter-Strike in a net cafe that was next door. That net cafe was long gone. It was uh, turned into like a bougie hat shop or something or bakery at that point. I can't remember exactly. Uh, Shout out to Does Not Compute was the name of the original net cafe. But this uh, cultural space called The Exchange had taken up residence next door, which was basically like, uh, it was like uh, like arts grant funded, and it was basically like community events. It was like, whatever your community event is, this is just like a bare room. It's just like one kind of small shop floor worth of space, but we will host your event, whatever it is. And so we got in with them, and they agreed to have our fighting game tournaments there for, for they didn't, they just wanted like very minimal money, uh, they were very trusting. They gave us the key to the place to open up early and stuff like that. And we would just set up. They had tables and chairs. We just brought in the consoles and uh, the, the monitors and stuff. And they would let us play a, a tournament there. It was an insane place to do so because it had extremely high... This is beside the Turk's Head in Dublin. I don't know if you guys know mm-hmm. that in Temple Bar. Or at the back of the Turk's Head. Um, yeah, just off Dame Street. So, like, very high street sure. area. Um. And you would get a lot of just, like, random people, homeless people, drug addicts coming in off the street. We had to be very careful about the equipment and stuff like that. I'm not shit-talking any of those people, but that was just the situation. We had to be very, very careful about uh, interactions and people trying to steal stuff. Um, It was coming to the end of a long day. I'd been there since 8 a.m. And I think it was now half six in the evening. And we were in the, the finals of the tournament. My brain was so fried that I thought the tournament was over and I had kind of automatically gone into collection mode, getting the monitors, getting the power cables and like putting them into the boxes. I didn't realize that the actual literal finals of the tournament were still happening in front of me. And I took the multi-tap adapter for the power cable that was running the monitor and the PS4 that was running the tournament and I plugged it out of the wall. No. And... As soon as I did it, all the noise in the room stopped. About 50 people turned around to me just holding this plug, including the two players who I both knew very well, just slack-jawed looking at me. Oh, no. And and I was just like, I'm so sorry. I just ruined the finals of the tournament. I just turned off the game as they were playing. Oh, God. I'm, I'm cr- no my skin's back. crawling thinking about it. There's there's no resetting the game. It's not like magic. You can't rewind. It's a video game. It's gone. So one player was one game up and had one game to win the tournament and was winning the final round. But you can't reset to that. You can, we can, but he was like, well, I had three bars of my super meter. They were on like 70% health. And the, and the other guy was like, no, I think I was on like 80% health. And I'm just Fucking like, nightmare. oh no, it's unsolvable. Yep. Um, what are the worst experiences of my so, life? My biggest. So the up. solution is we just start the game again and let him have his one nil. He has his round. Yeah. Yep. He has his one nil, and it's the final round, so he gets a round. But we were like, we don't know exactly what the super meters were at. Basically, it's like the wet. Uh, you know, it's like you use the super oh, meter, no. you build it during the previous yeah. round. But we're like, we can't verify that. No one was recording it. 
So we have to just go straight. You're up around. Both of you have no super meter. Let's go. Restart from there. And the tournament, thank fucking God, ended up turning out the same way, basically. It was like, he won that round, mm. and it was winner's bracket. It was a double elimination bracket, so winner's losers. So the guy who was winning and was about to win and said he had a bigger advantage before I fucking turned off the console right. still won the tournament. So it, it wasn't an upset. Uh, still one of the worst experiences of oh, my life. Sure. I've never felt so bad about anything. Yeah. Uh, there was money on the line, obviously. It was about, I think it was like uh, probably 200 euro for first place or something. Sure. Um, so, but the money isn't the thing. It was the integrity of the tournament. Yeah. Never felt, and I still think about this. This is this is 10 years ago. And I still think about this 10 I'm years sure ago. I'm sure, Yeah. Uh, uh, horrible. <laughs> so, well. you asked about fun stories. I'm like, that's not fun, but listen, it's I don't funny. know. I hope everyone listening is like, it's funny. <laughs> And I'm still friends with uh, with Chris, who won the tournament. I'm not friends with Steve-O, but only because he mysteriously disappeared from the Street Fighter okay. scene. He kind of came, came and went. He was a legend. He just came in, was like briefly the best player in Ireland, and then disappeared again. The legend of Steve-O Nevo 23. I, I don't know where he's gone in the last 10 years. But the lads didn't think worse of me afterwards. You know, they accepted just a, just a mistake, just a freak accident. It just happened, yeah. but... I've never forgiven myself for that. Like honestly, like to it's do that in a game I love. In yeah, it's in, a mistake. I know, I know, but it's a it's a game I love. It's a tournament that I participated in. I top aided the tournament. You know, I was have so much respect for both the players and uh, the idea I would do something like this. So insane. So I still think about Karen, that to this day. If, <laughs> if that is the biggest fuck up you've ever made, you should be very very proud of yourself. That, that's fair. That... Well, I'm sure I can dig into it. Oh, fucking Jace's therapy, therapy after dark. Yeah, yeah. Oh dear. No, I mean, in games, I mean, technical things happen. That those things happen. I mean, don't worry. So ridiculous, though. I want you guys to imagine the moment, though, when I just plugged it out. The silence grew in the room and then i just turned my head and 50 people are staring at me and i'm holding a plug in my hand oh no oh boy oh boy that was a good one <laughs> <laughs> like waking, waking up in the middle of the night you know like holding an imaginary yeah, plug i'm sorry guys i'm sorry <laughs> okay so i think that's us for the week guys yeah. Uh, thank you, Niall, for making me relive that incredibly traumatic memory. I'm gonna, I'm gonna never forgive you. <laughs> anytime, anytime at all. Anytime. All right, guys. Thank you for making it through this frankly insane gargantuan episode of Pocket Chases. I hope you've enjoyed it, and uh, we'll be back to you next week with probably, you know, an episode with half the size, but just as much pip and verve. Good. good night.